Well, first, let me say this. Thanks for finally coming, Tony. I know. I know. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate it. And it hasn't been. Not that I've wanted to. It's just very different uh, very different view from being on the consumer side than being on the producer side on what they'll let you do and what, you're, what you can do. Do you find it hard on the end user side? Uh, to, because you get an in rush of everybody wanting a little bit of your time you don't want to be rude you know you're trying to because the toes you step on today are connected to the ass you're kissing tomorrow right so you have to be like i don't want to blow you off or ghost you um but i don't really want to spend a lot of time with you no i so, think it's i think it you know i think what i've realized now on this side there's two different things that drive the business or i so i thought i think there was Technology drives the business. This is the PEM fuel cells, solid oxide fuel cells, PV, sustainability, all that kind of stuff actually drives the business. And then there's the business side, which it was always like, well, Tony, that's great. Can you deliver on time? Can you manage the capacity? Can you get the white space when we need it? And I always thought, you know, technology drove the business. And then I was always been my, my, my focus, my conversations, like we need more grids and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, the business drives everything. And so a great example of this is, and I, I know I'm going to offend some people here, it's immersion cooling. I get it. I get the use case. But the business doesn't care right now. Do you think Google's buying up, you know, megabits and mega, you know, megawatts and megawatts of, of immersion cooling? No. When the business needs it, they will do it. Tech, like technology does not drive the business. And that is a huge Huge learning experience for me being on this side of the business where I'm, you know, I probably am five or six months behind because I was like shiny object, ooh, technology, and I never really got, well, the business drives it. And that was been a, it's been a tough lesson to learn. So I want to get back to the part where you tell us how and when you learned that lesson because this industry is really heavy in pushing ideas forward ahead of the curve, right? Like, hey, the whole industry is going to be modular in the next five years. And I remember hearing that 15 years ago, right? And we're not quite there yet, but there has been incremental improvement or growth or productivity, you know, getting that to be more mainstream. And, and people are wrapping their minds around the adoption rate of that product from a transparent, predictable delivery model, right? Because everybody is working not on what the output is, but they're trying to figure out how do I prove that I can create this thing yeah. to meet the massive demand of compute that we have now in this well, space. The problem is, I, I agree with you to a certain extent, but look at me, I'm a consumer. Do I invest in $100, $100 million of Enchanted Rock diesels when I don't know if anyone's going to buy it? No. And so you get into this weird dilemma of, as a consumer, I look to the data center provider and say, well, what technology do you have out there that could make it better? But oh, by the way, I still want wholesale costs. So please still <laughs> keep it at 60 to 70 dollars per kilowatt and I want all this extra stuff. But as a as a provider, you're not willing to do that R and D aspect of it because you don't know if someone's gonna buy that kind of stuff. So it's almost like this everyone's just staring at each other. Like in and I think companies like, you know, Azure is a great example where, you know, Christian and Oz are investing in that kind of technology, but they're investing in it and they're gonna build it as a like do you think Vantage is gonna go out there or you know Yeah or, operators are it, operators are not going to invest yeah. in that kind of stuff until they have a hey you know, go build me a data center that has a PV and a best and all that kind of stuff. Then they'll build it for you. But it, you get in this weird kind of dilemma of the, and this is what it is. The business drives it. It's like it's not the technology that drives but it. But what drives it is the question um, because it's not that it's the most um, economically efficient solution. Um, but if you get to a magnitude 
like a hyperscaler or a group that operates like a hyperscaler, um, there's almost like a moral, a business moral thing that they're like, look, if we're doing X, we should be leading by, you know, using more adopt, adopting more um, advanced technologies on the MEP side that may not be the, may not pencil out the best, but at least it shows that we're doing our part as responsible yep. stewards of industry, right? So I think that's that's the why in some cases, not because it's the best solution, the cheapest solution, the fastest solution. It's because it's, if, uh, if green means green and not money green, then let's do the right thing. No, I agree with you, but the business has got to come to the technology people and say that. The technology people can go to the business people and sit there and say, I have a sustainable solution that's going to increase our carbon footprint by X, Y, or Z. If it's not in the business roadmap, they're not going to care about it. it so, so how does it? So, I had the opportunity to talk to you, but why don't you introduce yourself? So, oh, people sorry, that sorry. are listening, yeah, no, so, no, no, sorry. Yeah, Tony Grayson, very different path to tech. Um, spent 21 years in the military. Um, my total life dream was to command my own submarine, which I did. Nice. Problem with that was I spent four years. Of those four years on command, I was spending about 90% of my time at sea. That's good. And yeah, it was good. But, you know, I want to spend more time with my family. I spent, you know, all the times I didn't have to. When you were a kid, kid wanting to be a captain, you weren't thinking about being a I I agree with that. And there's a great podcast that I did with, uh, the, you know, Nomad Futurist about, you know, how my kid dealt with that kind of stuff. And it's still something I regret. I didn't spend all that time with them, help them grow up. And I really wanted to get out and spend more time with them. And it was really tough because, you know, I got that Stockdale Award right at the end of my command tour. And it's like, wow. You know, I, I felt like I actually did it, and here I'm leaving all this stuff behind to go into industry, which I didn't know if it'd be successful at. Um, but I, I felt like I wanted to do it for my family. So then spent two years at at, at Facebook, roughly. Um, loved it. Would still be there. The problem at that time, though, you had to be in Menlo Park. So, you know. And you're from, where do you live again? I, I, I live in Seattle right now, but I was from D.C. But, you know, for me, it was, I couldn't compete with the salaries of you know, software engineers getting sure. two million bucks, and the Navy gives you like you know a dollar, and your in your pension is like food stamps. It's like it's you cannot compete unless you're going to go way outside to the east side of the bay and drive in for three hours, and then you could live in that that kind of area as military. So, I moved up to Seattle, was flying the Nerdbird home down for six months, and so the Nerdbird is it's an airline where you know you fly down on Monday, you fly back on Thursday sure. or Friday. It's almost assigned seats. You sit next to your favorite friend. Yeah, you see him every all, week. It, you see him every week, it. kind of stuff. Um, Everyone's executive platinum. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. Exactly. And so, but then in the end, that's kind of why I left the military. So then I spent time at AWS, um, and then at Oracle, I had a chance to run their network, and then took over the corporate network, and then all their data center strategy. But about a year ago. You know, I started talking to, you know, Brian Cox, Robin Kunda, um, Chris Crosby. I saw Green Mountain, Digiplex sales. And I was like, man, I can do this kind of stuff. But I'm a total technology and ops person. So, you know, my total focus is technology and ops. Marketing, I think I know how to do it, but I don't. My financing, my budget, I'm a cost center. So my financing is just write a check for it. Uh, and then, you know, in sales, definitely know how to do that. And so... Um, Chris Cross offered, offered me an opportunity to kind of come in and, and run a line of business, so an LLC under him. So it's kind of a startup, but it's more of an incubator where sure. you know, I can do the startup, but I don't have to go find my own money. I can yeah. use Compass as support or all this kind of stuff. And so that's kind of how we ended up here. It's a Nirvana situation. Oh, you have an established brand that has um, 
a lot. I mean, people know who Compass is. They yeah. certainly know who Chris is, right? He was one of the OGs, still kind of is, right? And and that that product that you guys create, there's there's more pent up demand than there is available product for probably. It's just trying to figure out how to position it maybe in the market or create that narrative around it that people make it easy to discover. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, we're trying to do something super different where, you know, Compass is total hyperscale platform. We're going to sell to the, pl the clouds. We're going to sell to the platform business, and that makes sense. But what I'm trying to do is really kind of, you know, modular solutions anywhere. So if you need, we're, you know, at a podcast, if you need some HPC racks in the back of this place, we can actually deliver that kind of stuff, take care of all the permitting, land, the module. Well, look, I want to scratch model. the paint hard on that. So I'm going to, because we have no, we're in no rush. I, we bought plenty of beers. I've got enough for you to actually, because you were an officer, I was enlisted. Yeah. So the, the, how many beers do you have to have until you get jazz hands? I think I could, I could do jazz hands now if you want. Right now? Yeah. So listen, how did you, uh, let's back up, because you're from D.C. Yep. Or outside Maryland, D.C. Uh, right, you know, right outside uh, Northwest D.C. Your family, former military as well? Uh, my dad was Air Force. My grandfather was Navy, and he's the one who got me in. So he flew um, the, the Black Cats. During, so at Pearl Harbor, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, flew that you know that big patrol plane, Batcat Raiders, you know, all in the straits of um, you know, kind of all going through the, you know World War II doing bombing, but then was shot down. Spent, Your grandfather was shot down. Yeah, spent fifteen days or sixteen days on a raft. Never was the same. So this is PTSD before there was PTSD. For sure. But he always used to tell me these stories about service before self, and you know, kind of what he did with that you know that kind of that great generation. But so. I wanted to go to the military, but what I what I really wanted to do was I didn't want to have any time what to do. So, you know, <laughs> the problem, you know, aviation, you know, you're, you're flying hour mission. They're on comms with you, you know exactly what you're doing. Surface ships, your boss is probably right next door in a carrier telling you exactly what to do. The only command out there that was kind of where you could still be that alone and afraid is submarines. And so I was like, wow, that sounds pretty cool where I submerge, you know, if I am if I make it to CO, 38 years old, making, you know, kind of huge decisions on on submarines on you know kind of what we're doing if i'm front page you know if i succeed no one knows what i did if i'm if i fail i'm front page news of every news outlet so you you became a skipper at 38 no i think yeah oh. about 38 i think it was yeah so uh how so to put it into context for our friends from the civilian fleet that's a how much does a submarine cost uh, and i think three or four billion dollars something so like that. and you're not even 40 and you're in charge of a three or four billion dollar platform that yep. has a lot of and advanced weapons and technology on it, right? On a mission that's approved by the president, the, the president gets briefed on that you communicate when you come back to the president. There's only 50 of them yeah. or so. And so is a, I love that kind of stuff. It's just, you know. It's awesome. It's, you really are alone and afraid going out there and you're making weird decisions like, you know, you. I mean, it's some of the stuff I can't talk about here, sure. but it's just like, you know, holy shit. I can't believe that just happened. You know, whether it's, you're in the middle of an exercise, you never knew what was going to happen, whether someone might come a little closer than you and you wanted to or you expected, or, you know, you're doing stuff with SEALs that it's just, holy hell. So take it back. So you went from high school in Virginia or Maryland high to- High school, Virginia to Naval Academy. What year did you graduate from the academy? 96. So 96. Okay. And then, uh, no kidding. So I have a brother that graduated West Point in 96. I'm sorry. So you guys- so, um, That's a poor well, choice. Well, didn't you lose all four yeah, years? Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. <laughs> so was, he reminds it, me every time. It, it, it was, still, it was still fun. It was still fun. <laughs> so uh, I bet you I went to one of those games that you were at. I probably- was it, was, it was always, how do you get? How do you hire a kicker who goes to the 20-yard line and misses it wide right? 
know, was, you know, wide left. It was just like, seriously, you know, sure. you could pick anyone in the stands, get out there, just give them something and bet they could get a better field goal than we ever could. That's crazy. So, uh, so I have a brother that graduated from the academy in 96, but again, he was at, at West Point, but, um, I have gone to plenty of those games when he was there. So I'm sure I was at games you were at, but when you, when you went to the academy, was that the only school you were looking at? Did you know you no, wanted to be in the Navy? No, you know, I, I was looking at MIT, UVA, ROTC, all those kind of other stuff. But I really wanted to go in, I, you know, where I felt like I had the best chance to launch in the Navy. Because I was I wanted to be the CNO, I wanted to command my own submarine. No kidding. So it, was it a fast attack or do you want to be like... No, I want to be a, oh yeah, fast tech. You know, okay. I want to do all the stuff that I saw in the movies. You know, I first actually, I, I should be honest. I saw a Top Gun. I want to fly, and then they're like, "Your eyes suck. You can't do laser to get it fixed." I'm like, "I want to do submarines." Sure. So, um, so, but I'm happy that everything worked out the way it did. But uh, you know, I wanted to go in there. I want to make a life out of it and and go do that kind of stuff because it's, it's. Was it hard to get in the Naval Academy? Uh, it was. It was. You know, the Naval Academy is interesting where you have. You have to be abetted by a blue and gold officer. Then you have to make the admissions. Then you have to get, get some kind nomination. of congressman, yeah, nomination to go through all that kind of stuff. Then you just have to last. It's just like, you know, you're talking to your friends from high school. They're out partying, partying enjoying themselves. Your and you're like getting screamed at doing, you know, 100 push-ups for no damn good reason or doing parades when it's just asinine. What was your favorite part about being in school at uh, the Naval Academy? I think at the Naval Academy, it's just um, – you really got to do a lot of cool stuff. I mean, you always had access to good research. You had very good access to very good professors. You had cool summers. I think, you know, I spent three summers on submarines. So Did was, you really? Every midshipman? Every, was, you know, I was forced to do the, the Marine thing, which was like, seriously, I'm like. What do you do? What they make you do? They go they, to like they, Camp they Pelton, send, they, send, they send to Quantico. So you do like a, two weeks of basic and a week at OCS. It's like, seriously, guys, I'm going submarines. I don't. They're like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to sit on my ass and push a button. I'm not going <laughs> to navigate by the stars. I think it's cool. I think it's awesome. Not my not my thing. So what did you study at school? Were you obviously uh, Control went... systems. So when you graduated, did you go right to power school? Uh, went right. To, no, actually, I spent time at a Comdel Telcom. So the head of the communications of the Navy in D.C., my, 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 my girlfriend at the time, but then my wife was an American, so it's right across the street. So I was there for six months, and then I spent six months down in in uh, Orlando, and then six months up in Charleston. Is that where you went to prototype? That's where I went to prototype. Yeah. And then from there, did you pick fast attacks, or did you? No, I actually picked Boomer. Is that what you? I, went ex to? I actually expected to get out. Really? Yep. So well, I I was gonna I was gonna a Boomer, I was gonna get out and go to uh, get my MBA. So hold on, did you? So you were gonna get out because you were on a Boomer? No, it's just going to get out because I was married then at that time, and I wanted to focus on just you know getting out and and. What was and, your father career Air Force? He was career Air Force. But he was contracting. So okay, so uh, originally you went in because you wanted to be the CNO and be the skipper, and then and, you get to your first boat. It's a boomer, and, and I you're went, like I want to. No, I but I chose that. I think my what I went in for when I got out was something different. So I. So those people that are listening, like. I don't know what a boomer life is like, but w walk people through. I mean, gold crew, blue crew. No, so it's gold crew, blue crew. Blue crew. So two crews, you go out, um, you submerge for 90, 120 days. And at that time, you got, I think, six family grams. So family grams, 50 words or less. Because that wasn't even like, there wasn't even really email kicking. No, there's no goodness. No, there was no email. Um, so yeah, these family grams, and you just go out, you submerge, and you, you know, came up six, you know, three or four months later. Were we out at Kings Bay or? Uh, no, Banger. 
Okay, so you uh, end up being stationed on the Pacific Fleet yep, the whole time? Pacific Fleet. I, I, no, actually, I, I spent two two tours Pacific Fleet. So my XO, my JO tour, and then two tours in the Atlantic, which was my department and my CO tour. Well, walk me through. So you grad, you come out of Charleston, you get done with prototype, you go uh, to your first boat in yep. Banger. And, and Banger. And how long were you on that boat? For? Which uh, boat was it? It was USS Nevada Gold Crew. Nevada Gold. Uh, yep. Okay. So, you know, I think I kind of there, I realized that I kind of like this kind of stuff. Was is that is that boat still running? Uh, that's a good question. I think so. Okay. Yeah, um, but I kind of realized there I kind of liked what I was doing. So great crew, great CO, um, had a lot of fun there. You know, what when we like? shot a ballistic, we shot a boot like a we did one of the uh, testing where they basically loaded a, a live round on you and you go through the the Panama Canal. It's my first tour. Go through the Panama Canal and go out to Pecan. You sit for two weeks in Pecan. Sure. You shoot up I'm like this is great. You know. We, Panama Canal, awesome. Port Canaveral, awesome. Go shoot yeah. a missile, awesome. Uh, and learn all that kind of stuff. Because I did uh, that undersea weapons range out out there too, right? And then we pulled into, I turned 21 at sea, so we pulled into Pecan and uh, didn't even make it off the pier. I mean, to the end of the pier. Yeah. And the first pier you could find. It, it, the bar actually has a, like when you walk in and you don't have your warfare pin yet, but you're going to drink your fish, they actually have those pictures that have, like, they super glued the, your dolphins on the bottom of a like you have to drink until yeah. the fish come up. up. Yeah, but um, so you did uh, that, and what were you then? You were a division officer. That I was guess? A, just a geo. So I was, uh, I guess, I was started off as the I, I'm a CRA and MPA, and then it ended up being the AWEPS when I left. Okay, and then um, where did you go when you left? I left. I went down to be a Marine Corps aide, or was I an aide to a Marine Corps general, a one star then a two star at Southcom. Where's that at? Uh, Miami. And you, I mean, your guys' detailer, that's what you, you didn't want to go to sea, I guess? Uh, like... No, I just wanted to, I wanted to try being an aide. Um, okay. So that's kind of how it worked. Kind of have to check that box, I guess, at some yeah, point. Yeah, kind of had to check that box. And I thought, you know, Miami, that sounds interesting. We just had one kid and Miami sounds fun. How long is that type of tour? That was two years. So you're at sea for what, three probably? And then you do two there? Two years, yep. And, and, then, I, and then I went up to Connecticut and was WEPS on uh, USS Connecticut. Okay, so I was, that's Groton, that's where I was. Yeah. Uh, the Memphis, I was on the Memphis, so we were right there next to you. Oh, yeah. Now, was the Connecticut one of those like Seawolf class? Yep, or Seawolf Centurion? class number two. Okay. Yep. So it was always robbing parts from each other. Sure. No one knew how they worked. They always wanted, as WEPs, they always wanted four torpedo teams going at once. All silliness. Okay. Because uh, you could carry, you know, you had the- Were you the WEPs? I was the WEPs. Was that a cool job? I did. That's what I, exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to go, you know, I want to be an engine. I want to be a nav. I want to be a webs. But in the end, that was, just, you know, in retrospect, that was where, and I don't want to offend anyone here, but that's where they set the dumb people. So <laughs> it was always like, well, was, what's your nuclear rating? We'll send you to be a webs. Remember, I was telling you that uh, I only saw one bad officer the whole time I was in, and he was the webs. Oh, yeah. And he got sacked. Oh, yeah. So um, what about, like, did you go on med runs or? You guys do any nice uh, no, runs? We, we did a, uh, a Middle East run. Okay. So yep. you're in the med? Yep, in the med. And then um, wh when you came off that boat, what did you do? I came off that boat and I went to be a detailer. Oh, really? So what is that, in Tennessee? Memphis. Yep. Okay. So that was the post-department head detailer. So I was assigned. This was times of IA, so individual augmentation. So I had to send people to Iraq. Um, and we also sent you know the department heads to out to the sea, sea tours. What uh, what are the options that those guys can have to augment sea time on a submarine, but still stay 
really closely aligned to that community so they don't get passed over, I guess, to get to their... I mean, you mean like what jobs are the best for those posts? Yeah, like is there a roadmap that people lay out? No, I think think it's if you're doing anything operational and you can try to make your mark and make a difference, I think those are the best ones. I think a lot of them filled in like just staff operations jobs and, and we're just like watch officers. Does the social dynamic of the people you know, like we are in this industry. Oh, it's, oh my ins- goodness. So it's, it's, it is hugely, you know, it is you want to call someone who can get you that boat that you want sure. or can vouch for you or you go to trouble boat and all that kind of stuff. It is very much a, you know, it's definitely what you do, but it's also because I ran all the boards too for the submarines and it was always about, you know, how well people knew, knew you and stood up for you. I got you. So when you came off that, were you you were department head, you were the WAPS. Next tour is a XO tour? No, or? so it was the it was the detailer and then at next tour was a I did went to a GN out of Groton or What's sorry, that? Banger. A GN. Uh it's got a missile submarine, so Ohio. Oh, okay. oh one yep, of those. Yep. So Ohio was converted to a uh hundred and twenty six Tomahawks and two sealed delivery vehicles. I was like I had uh S, what, SDRVs or whatever. Yep, SDV yeah. or sealed delivery vehicles. Yeah. yeah. yeah All SDVs. right, I got gotcha. you. Yep. Was the Parchy one of those boats? No, Parchy was previous, but they, I'm not sure if they carried seals, but Jimmy Carter replaced the Parchy. Carter, so, okay. Yeah, Parchy did all the special ops stuff, and Jimmy Carter was like a sea You ever wolf. read that book, Blind Man's Blood? Oh, yeah. Remember Admiral Graff? Yeah. His son was my department head for a while, Scott graph he was a stud still is obviously but no and it's it's it always makes me laugh and i do have this conversation quite a bit in our industry i'm always like um well subsea cables huh and uh, like well we can always tell when you're messing with them like hmm, can you really tell yeah. well we have shunting electrical and current and blah 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 like hmm. somehow there's a moon pool on a submarine and <laughs> you know the russians launched the pultus an awful lot and we do the same with jimmy carter yeah i think we probably can mess with them um, so so you went uh, to one of those boats and it was back in Banger? Uh, back in Banger, yep. How often was that boat deployed? Uh, we before we deployed at Guam. Okay. So we, most of the time we flew to Guam and deployed at Guam. Okay, so that still had like a blue and a gold crew? Blue, still blue and gold crew, you know, high op tempo, going out and doing missions in the Pacific. But you, uh, from there, where'd you go? I went from there, I went to actually Bahrain. I was the uh, EA to Fifth Fleet. And Comnav sent, or Comnav sent, at first it was Mark Fox, Mert, and then it was Fozzie Miller. So F-18 pilot and F-14 Rio. Gotcha. So it was great. I mean, I, I wouldn't trade that, that tour for the world. We lived in, the whole family lived in three years in Bahrain before the Arab Spring. So they got to witness all of that. And they got to have this real interesting relationship where everyone's afraid of the Middle East. My kids got to live there, um, have very, you know. Super interesting friends, you know, got to see super interesting things, you know, got to meet, you know, the crown prince, got to go to these kind of things. For me, you know, got to brief secretary of state, met all, you know, flew all those Middle East countries with the boss and had some super interesting meetings. And that's how I kind of met, uh, you know, Colonel General Mattis, too. Oh, really? Yes. This was. uh, What rank was he then? He was he was CENTCOM at the time. Okay. Yep. And then how was he? He was awesome. So he was like, he's the kind of guy that was like, you know, he donated an AK-47 to CENTCOM. It's like, Tony, let me take this apart for you. Show you how to, you know, if you ever have to use it, how you could still use it and it's still working order, even though it's on a plaque. This or, is Mad Dog Mattis. This is Mad Dog Mattis. Or even when you go into a meeting with him, when you're in Qatar for some kind of meeting and, and he'd be like, you come with your boss because you're the EA, 
you kind of sit there to be take the notes and everything. And so I was like, Admiral, I get it. Let's talk to Tony. Tony, how you doing? And I, it was just amazing that kind of I've never had, like it just makes all those stories about you know kind of him kicking when he's a general like you know two Mav kicking his the you know the the duty officer out saying hey I got I got Christmas duty. It's just, I heard he, I heard he stood watch for gate yep, duty. Before. Exactly, exactly. It was it was awesome. That kind of kind of it was just yeah. it's super interesting hearing from him and what he did and what he what could make you learn. I um I had a when you know you're doing workups you know we had a. I don't know if it was a tree or an horse, and we had a. This my one of my first times meeting a one star that was sitting on the boat with us, and he sat right behind me and was just shooting the shit with me the whole time. And now he made everybody in the wardroom, you know, nervous as shit, I guess. But for us, he would just talk to us like a regular person, and he'd have regular conversations and ask us about every day on the boat, and you know, what do we like about being in the navy? He like genuinely was investing into the fleet. It seemed like at that point. I found that like uh, those guys were very unassumingly um, cordial and and welcoming. You know, they were looking to really cultivate and grow the. the you know, and I think that's kind of what the Navy needs more. You know, if I look back at the way I acted or the way I was a CEO, that the Navy needs more of that. So I, I think, you know, kind of, you know, you're only as good as the last horse or stuff like that. Was just kind of, it forces you into a different dynamic. When reality, we should all be like that. That admiral that you talked about. Yeah, I mean, like I had good captains. I had great captains that um, they definitely had the ability to exercise a voice when necessary. I never like, getting yelled at was never a problem for me, yeah. right? So I understood. For me, it was just a, a, a way for them to express the passion they had and whatever the message yep. was, and I never took it as an attack. Um, but I was also born and raised in a military family where my father was a, yeah. a Mustang, right? And uh, I, I kind of learned to get comfortable with the way that some of those people were always functioning, you know, to where I, uh, I understood what they were trying to get accomplished. And maybe I didn't have this, you know, I wasn't viewing it through the same optics as them, but yeah. they would have their way of, of educating me and how I should be viewing things. And sometimes it would be assertive. <laughs> so... I was and, and it wasn't that. It was just, you know, are you are you trying to do this because you want a good grade or are you trying to do this because you actually want the boat to be successful and everyone comes from the boat? And I think that's a hard decision. Well, you said that one of the things that you had was the goal to just, I mean, you want to be a captain. And, yep. and what I found was the guys that I worked for, they just wanted to be a captain. Anything past that was like a bonus to them. So they weren't political. Yep. You know, they were diplomatic, but they weren't they weren't using us as the stepping stone to their star or something like that, right? You know, they, and, and that's what, I was like, what I was to be a captain in the end. You know, I, I, when I went in, I really want to be a CNO or whatever, but in the end, it was just be a successful captain and walk away from it when you could. What's successful though? Is it like your crew? Uh, I think it, for me, if I look back, it was all the chiefs that I want to get selected, got selected. It was all the people got promoted, got promoted. You know, all my department heads went on to be XOs. All my XOs went on to be CEOs. Oh, really? All my JOs who stayed in became XOs. That to me was success. Is that how they measure you guys? No, that's not at all how they measure you. They measure you by your, you know, how well you did on Palm Cert, how well you did all these certifications and and, and kind of evaluations. Administratively, they're measured. Uh, administratively, I'm how well you train your crew and all that kind of stuff. I think in the end, you know, looking back, you know, I'm seven years removed now. It's I measure myself by how well the people that I we you know commanded or or served with were successful. So. Um... So you went from the, uh, what was it, Ohio? What was the boat? Ohio to Bahrain to Providence, which was my command tour. 
Uh, so you didn't have to do an EXO tour? No, I, the EXO tour was Ohio. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. What's it like being an EXO? Uh, it's, man. Because you have to be like, that's like the bad cop, right? Well, I think there's two kinds of EXOs. There's the EXO that's the engineer prior served that knows all the engineering stuff. And then there was me. <laughs> it was the operations technology person where the CEO was the, you know, CEO was the engineer person. Um, but I think you have to get into the details and keep all the plates spinning. Uh, and that's where you kind of learn how to really delegate. Because I think up to that point, you and Rowdy can micromanage the hell out of everything. But it's an XO, you can't, you just can't do it. And so you actually have to, that's when you first get your leadership test of how do you delegate and how do you follow through and how to keep all the plates spinning. So who's in your corner the most? Was it like you had to have the cob in your corner the whole time? Oh, my goodness. You had to have the cob. You had to have cheese quarters first, definitely. And that's how you got through to the JOs. And you also had to have the department heads in your tour. And, of course, you presented to the CEO, like, this is the way we're going to go forward and how we plan to do it. And he either said yes or, or gave you direction, you know, based on his feedback. But remember, my when I was XO, the CEO was the second tour CEO. Oh, really? Yep. So those GNs were all major commands. So they were all second tour CEOs. That's pretty special then, right? Yep. Yep. So those cap those captains are probably top of the top. You no, know, they're they're top of the top and they've been there and done that before. So it made it made it super easy to learn. And they're all four captains, so you didn't have this weird dynamic of so in you know, equivalency, the Commodore is the same rank and level as the CEO of the GN. So sure. it you didn't have this weird kind of hierarchy piece when you're talking about things. I mean, there was definitely was a hierarchy still where you still listen to the operation commander, but I think there's a little bit more back and forth um, that you could do. Of those boats, which one was like the coolest deployments you went on? Uh, I think, you know, the Ohio was probably the coolest because we do a lot of SEAL ops and a lot of cool missions and, and that kind of stuff. But I, I you know, I think even Connecticut did some cool stuff too. So, and, and I could say Providence too, so, you know, back my CO. So the Providence is when you became the skipper? And they're out of Groton as well. They're right? out of Groton. Yep. So you did you retire out of Groton? I retired at Groton. Okay. So how long were you back in Groton? I was back in Groton for six months before I left the Navy and went to go work for Facebook. Hmm. So how long is the CO tour? Yes, my CO tour was three and a half years. So at the end of three and a half, you had the option to go. You know, you go to your go to your waterfront tour and then go do your shore tour and then go become your major command tour which is go be a commodore or something like that and you were like because that's kind of shore duty right i mean no it's kind of shore duty but at that time i'd spent so much time out at sea i kind of achieved my lifelong goal and i just you know basically said hey let me go try out in this real world kind of thing you know it was and it was tough because i had a tough cop you know conversations uh, you know, with the CNO and those people trying to get me to stay in. But in the end, it's you got to do what's right for yourself and the family. So to that end, right, being born and raised in a military family, my dad was a B-52 bomber guy. And it was interesting. I mean, this the Revolution shirt, you you knew what it meant immediately when you saw it. But it's uh, we did this shirt because it's the symbol of Strategic Air Command, yep. the SAC. And my dad was in the SAC, right? He, I lived in Minot, North Dakota for five years. And... Um, I'll tell you, like, those guys, they were on alert every other week. It's a great movie. You ever seen It's an old 50s movie, The Strategic Air Command. I haven't seen it, I guess. All black and white. Oh, really? It was Watch the it. predecessor from pre-B-52 in the, in the movie they're on the B-52. Yep. yep. It's a Strategic Air Command. So they, you know, they they, they took, you know, they hollow that 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 whole community. It's a great, 
I didn't even know they yep, made movies they, about Air a, Force. It's total. It is a total Hollywood thing about recruiting. So it's like the Top Gun of of the fifties, the fifties <laughs> and early sixties on on you know kind of strategic air command. But it's a great movie. I absolutely love it. That's unfortunate. I. I enjoy telling my dad and my brother about how they don't even make movies about the Air Force. No, they definitely do. They haven't made one since the 60s. Oh, in fact, Iron Eagle also. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chappie. Breaking up, breaking Chappie. up. Yeah, Chappie, breaking up the, you know, the, the, the Air Force movie, recruit movie. But, you know, the it's funny, you know, we have in the Navy, we have Top Gun and Maverick now. Total who got movies. But then, you know, Army has, you know, Hamburger Hill, Platoon, oh, Apocalypse been, Now, Black Hawk all, Down, yeah, Black Outpost, Hawk Down, all, yeah. all not inspiring movies to go join. Oh, uh, I know. We Were Soldiers. I remember reading that book once. I was like, I remember reading that book while deployed, and I was like, thank God I'm on a submarine. But there's actually a reference in that movie where the first sergeant is like, you know, they're in a foxhole at night and shooting. <laughs> he leans over to Mel Gibson, and he's like, Kind of makes you wish you joined submarines, right? And I was like, Oh my goodness! And it's you know, it's just like when you actually sit on board like a Virginia class, and they're sitting with their, they're sitting on their seat, they're sitting on their butt, and they have that little Xbox joystick, and they're doing all the periscope stuff. I'm like, back in my day, <laughs> yeah. I spun around the periscope, <laughs> and I've seen it for four hours, but it's nothing like sitting in a foxhole. Oh man, I uh, so I have a bunch of uh, our primary brand is Overwatch, and we have a lot of former military and. Uh, many on my leadership team are uh, former infantry and they have stories that I can't, I don't even bother telling these stories because it's, you can't compete. And it's, it's just a totally different, totally different background, totally different lifestyle. And, you oh, know, yeah. God bless them. As I complain about being seasick and they're like, yeah, did anybody shoot you that day? You're all right then. Yeah, exactly. Up. Your, your bad day was, oh, the coffee. <laughs> we ran out of, we ran out of cookie dough ice cream. <laughs> I know. What happened Go back here? into port and get more cookie this dough ice cream. Outrageous. Just... I told you that uh, the other time I ever saw someone get reprimanded by the captain on the ship was when the chop ran out of beef and we had chicken for like 20 straight days as a meal. And I remember the captain's like, you don't feed my crew nothing but chicken. You're out, you know, but. So what was uh, what was your favorite boat? Was it as the captain? You know, I would say as the captain, just because that's the boat you make it. Um, you know, you take what you have and you and you turn it around and you make it. You know, a successful boat. Um, and that's the one I felt like I make the most mark on from the crew wise. And you know, um, when you left it, you know, I enjoyed growing up. Uh, you know. I don't ever feel sorry for myself. When I first got in this industry, I would be gone Monday and come home on Friday all the time. And I remember one time having a little pity party for myself. I was at Eaton, I think at the time I was a PM and I had hired one of my chiefs to come in and and I was, you know how it is. You're just like, oh my God, I'm missing this, I'm missing that. And he's like, Kirk, you do realize that half our friends are still deployed for six to eight months at a click. You're home at least on the weekends. You yep. get to watch the ball games and and you know, that changed the way I viewed a lot of things. And, you know, you, you were talking about like, hey, I, I want to be home. I want to be around my family more, around my kids. And I think everybody wants that. But at the same time, there was a lot of value in not having my old man there because it forced me to have to think for myself, right? And the benefit of growing up, moving from base to base every few years was you get closer with your family because they're the only ones that you always could depend on to be friends with you every time you moved. But the other part was... Um, you didn't really plug yourself into like the neighborhood narrative. So you were able to come, like come to your own conclusion on things. Now, I think my kids, have, you know, they'll sit there and tell you they've, 
they hated moving around a lot, but they've been able to adapt well at college because of that. Whether acclimation, it's, yeah. it's the acclimate, you know, ability to find friends, to um, you know, figure out what what fits, what doesn't fit, really quickly. To be able to succeed on your own and and be fine on your own, I think you have to think been... for yourself. Exactly, you'd show up to. I mean, you'd go into North Dakota where you have no idea what's up, and the next thing you know, I'm in Washington for five years or something, and it's a whole new culture. Right? You no, know but I still regret it though, because I think my eldest was in three high schools. I was the only one in my family. Okay. I'm the youngest, so I was the only one that got to go to one. But yeah, yeah I could I can empathize. I went yeah. to multiple. I probably went to four or five elementary schools, a couple of middle schools, but I went to one high school. My brothers all had to go to you know multiple high schools, yeah. but it didn't hurt us. I mean, they're all doing very well. Um, I do think that there was an advantage to that as well. I, oh, I, I would agree you could, with that. You could look at it one way or the other, but when you left, you knew, you know, like the, you have to, at some point we all know when the party's over. For me, it was just one one tour. Yeah, I didn't get out because I didn't like it. I got out because I had other goals and things that I wanted to get accomplished. So I, I just kept on trucking. But um, how did you find yourself into Facebook? Because I know uh, that Furlong loves submariners. No, Furlong loves submariners and it was it made an e super easy transition. And so I was originally supposed to go run, you know, the facilities out of Dublin. We've been trying to go overseas forever. And, sure. you know, it was, uh, we had a transfer to Perth, turned that down with the Bahrain instead. So, so as a civilian went back to Bahrain? No, we were supposed to go to overseas, but I oh. ended up going, um, just based on my background, I got picked up by a different team on, and so I had to be in Menlo Park. And so, Doing kind of more infrastructure, you know, ISP, OSP. But how did you, when you got out, if you retired from New London, Connecticut, what made you go to Seattle to work for Facebook? No, I went to Menlo Park. Oh, you did? I was in California for a year and a half. Okay. And then did you send your family up north? Uh, nope. Cal family was there too. Okay. And then at some point you're like, this is untenable. No, it was just, it was just too expensive. We couldn't afford, you know, it was like at that time it was cash offers. It was 10 yeah. offers at our home. Sure. We couldn't afford it. We'd have to go, you know, way East Bay to be able to afford anything. And it's not, you know, as much how awesome those Facebook buses were, going on a two and a half hour bus ride to go in for a two and a half bus ride to go back, just not it's worth it. It's a down. Yeah. Exactly. It's just not worth it. I remember uh, I too took a job in Silicon Valley. I lived in Los Gatos when I got out and I rented a 1,058 uh, square feet house no backyard, no garage. It had no heat. No, no, I'm sorry, I had no AC, but it had a uh, heat. And um, I paid 3,500 a month in rent. That was a long time ago. And I remember going to go look at a house and I gave the realtor like a range, you know, and I was like, ah, show me something for a half a million bucks. And, you know, they're like, show me homes that had bars on the windows. And they're like, look, you can't park your car out front. It's gonna get jacked. And I just remember thinking, I'm like, can't live here. <laughs> That's exactly what it's good. We just couldn't afford it. And so it was just, you know, instead of putting a family through all that stress of trying to find a home or, you know, it, now they're, you know, the good thing about Facebook, they move, actually moved, the IDC moved to the East Bay. So it's, it makes it much easier to live out there. It was just, you know, you have to find another way to do it. And so that's why we, they moved the whole family up to Seattle. It started finding the nerd bird down. So what made you pick Seattle though? Uh, just two times I've been there. So during my Joe tour, Maxo tour. Oh, from Banger. Yep. And we just like the area. It's a beautiful area. It is. And then, um, and you live there still? Still live there. What would get you to move from there? Uh, you know, I think it's getting the last kid out of, of school and we still, we, you know, we've been dying hard <laughs> to move overseas. 
um, just well, to go to anywhere Europe. in particular. Yeah, just over you know in in the continent. You know whether it's really. Yep, we've been trying to very hard to move over there. Do you have a preference of where you go? No, I think Luxembourg, Italy, France, Germany, you know, you name it, all sounds awesome. London, you know, England, all sounds awesome. It's just a different, it's just something different. You know, it's, we've always been moving every couple of years and now it's like, I've been living in Seattle for, I guess, five years now and it's like, it's, it's time to go. So were you in, so how long ago have you been removed? Uh, I got out in 2016. So, so in 2001, years. what were you doing? September uh, 11th. Uh, September 11th, I was actually in Miami at Southcom. I was the oh. aide, yep. So you got to see everything kind yep, of Yep, got to see everything down as a strategic command for all, you know, Latin American and the Caribbean and, and seeing what that was. And that at the time was general pace and, you know, all the meetings that we did and all the first protection moves we did when we didn't really know what was going on. Was that cool? Oh, it was cool. not necessarily cool, but uh, it was interesting to see, you know, general pace in action. And um, yeah, it was inter- behind the behind the scenes phone calls of, you know, calling up joint chiefs and, and being a part of that whole process post 9-11 and how we strengthened the force protection and just be like the fly on the wall for all that kind of stuff. Interesting. But when you, all right, so when you. But that was also around the time too, where, you know, where I still remember this was two weeks after 9-11, we're at an operations presentation for General Pace, and all of a sudden Rick Ashley comes on. Who's that? Rick Ashley. Mm-mm. Blunt, you know, red hair, you know, never going to pick you up. Oh, no. my God. So they, they, some some awesome J.O. thought he would Rickroll the, the... That's awesome. <laughs> In retrospect, it's awesome, but it was like, what's going on here? We've been hacked by the... The That's Chinese savage. or the Russians or the Iranians savage. or the Iraqis. And I'm like going, sir, it's a rickroll. You just got to, everyone's freaking out. Cybersecurity. And it's just like this one little, you know, I felt so bad from like one 20 year old kids. Like, sorry, sir. I just thought I would oh, life in the mood. Please tell me that guy's on his way to be an animal. I, I have no, I have no clue whatever <laughs> happened to that. I've never felt so bad for a kid in my entire <laughs> life. Just been like, he probably, uh, my guess is that kid probably, uh, you know, went to the Naval Academy and spent his whole life preparing for like this amazing epic, whatever. Yeah, I'm going to present the general pace and all this stuff and I rickroll them. Um, You know what? That's gangster stuff, though. I could respect that. Um, All right. But so when you got out, you did you interview with a lot of other companies or did you just go? How did you you end up at Facebook? I I think I was just Facebook because it was a great you know, it's just Facebook, you know, they pay well, sure. great opportunities, you know, they had huge Furlong. veteran presence, Yeah, you know, great protection, teach you a lot of stuff. The only bad thing was moving to California. Um, so that's kind of it made it. How super... did you get into the fold though? Cause I know that he, it's, it's just the Stockdale. Okay. I mean, I, I wish I could say anything was anything else. It was a Stockdale stuff. Gotcha. So that was the, what got me in the front door for Facebook. And then, um, you left and you went to, was it AWS? AWS. How long were you there for? Uh, about a little less than a year. Was Oz there then? Uh, no, Oz had already left. Um, and I, to be honest, I liked it, but it was just, you know, I wanted to, to do a little bit more. And, you know, Oracle offered me something a little bit different, you know, too. Yeah. Because I was doing a lot of the same stuff I was doing at Facebook there. And I really wanted to. And, and more I network? Was, you're on the network side more? Uh, no, I was on the, the operations side. So under Bo on there, but on the, it was kind of the IT smart hands and then more of the design side. But 
I liked it, but in the end, I wanted to do something different. I mean, it was this whole, I've never done networking. I knew, you know, the funny thing is uh, a submarine has like 15 megawatts of IT load. So you kind of knew about the stuff, how everything worked together, but I thought I knew enough to actually get out there and try something different. So, you know, Oracle's like, well, why don't you come run our production network for us? And I was like, well, that sounds cool. What was the most significant thing you learned in the military, regardless of whatever, you know, rank you were at or what role you were in? that allowed you to successfully transition into that. To be honest, I don't think any of it helps us. I really? think it actually, I think is a deterrence to be perfectly honest. Tell me, help me understand. You know, what so you I mean. was, I was super lucky at, at Facebook and I, you know, where they were like, Hey, Tony, you think you know it, but you don't. And so we're not going to allow you to do anything for four or five months. Is so, it the dialect that you have to learn? No, it's, I think it's, it's, you know, we, we try to tell ourselves in the military that we are used to leading diverse cultures. We're not, we're all taught to think the same. We all come from different backgrounds, but, you know, boot camp, everyone else is for it. You know, in the end, they can always sit there and say, Kirk, hey, I got it. Do it anyway. I don't care what you think. Um, and people lead on that a lot. So leadership's different. Finances are a joke. It's just like, I'm going to maintain a budget, but I'm still going to order a hundred thousand dollar overrun. Yeah. I'm not sure. You know, what are they going to say? Cause no. you have to, yeah. cause you know, so there's no P and L you're just a huge cost center. Um, you know, operations are very rigid in the fact that everything kind of goes the same. I think the only thing that, that is interesting that kind of teaches you is like shipyard, all the stuff that you absolutely hated on whether it's, you know, retrofits or, or decom or, or, you know, kind of that stuff you actually learn the most. It, and, that's the, and, that's the most thing that's applicable. How do you manage multiple trades to do the job? And so, you know, I think they did a very good job of not allowing me to, to, <laughs> to make any decisions because I would have said... Yeah, I've seen this before. This is what we need to do, but yes, I've seen it before, but in a different environment with different people, and I would have drove a very different outcome. What were you expecting when you left the service? Well, I expected exactly what they told me was. I've been, you know, I've been in management for twenty years. I know how to do this stuff. I've done operations. It's just totally different, you know. And that's what I, I try to do when I talk to vets now, trying to make them understand it's you can't go in there and be arrogant about it and say, you've done this before. I don't care what level you are. It's it's just totally, totally different. And you have to come in with some kind of, you know, curiosity with with no ego and understand, man, you got a lot to learn. And well, you, what would you, how would you define your leadership style? Like if I were to, if I didn't know you, but I ran into your XO or any of your department heads, what would they have said about your leadership or your management style? You know, I think- Good it, or bad, I mean- like, You know, I think, you know, in, I think, so, I'll be honest, I almost got fired as a CEO. So or, I think I as micromanaging, so I took over a boat that was having problems and I was there to fix it. And I thought, you know, at that time I could, I had that bandwidth where I could, you know, kind of order people what to do and make things happen and be very micromanaging, but that, that only gets you so far. And I think I kind of, when I had that oh shit moment, um, I kind of realized you have to change yourself to empower the team. What was the oh shit moment? Was it? It was the, the hey, you better fix this shit or you're gone. <laughs> It can't get better than that. I had a uh, I had a nuke master chief cob um, who was the chief for my captain when he was a jail. So obviously that cap you know that jail became a captain and that guy became a cob and I knew that the captain like it wasn't as though the, the the master chief was the burning bush but it would take a lot to dissuade that captain from disagreeing with what that yeah. that cob was saying. But I watched that Cobb even then still kind of groom that CE, that CO and help him become a better leader just very subtly. You know, he was uh, very unassuming, very humble. I got to work 
I mean, like I said, I, I, ha I had the privilege of working with amazing guys. I actually, funny story, there was a guy that was our DCA. Uh, he failed me on my first board. So I... So I ranked offense board or... Yeah. So I um, I needed to be fired. I mean, needed to fail, right? Oh, yeah. And it's because, like, I got to the ship and got all my needs mounted. You know, I got everything done to E9. And, like, I was a hot runner, you know, so I was trying to always be number one in all those things. And I think I showed up just a little too arrogant for my board. No, 100% agree. Same, same thing. I think you need to... I think you need to get punched in the face. Then you oh, think you yeah. need to have a little grit. And you got to realize where your place in the world actually is. And so doing all your lookups in an EAB certainly will humble you, right? Could have been him at OBA. <laughs> Slightly worse. <laughs> yeah. But let's, listen, <laughs> I was flying through my walls and I yeah. was, I mean, I didn't have to really crank at all. I was staying in watch stations. I was earning, yeah. like, I, I remember uh, this guy, though, he was always the officer of the deck, and I was always on watch with him during every major inspection, oars, trees, whatever. And he was as hardcore as they came. He was former enlisted, went to UT, actually, got his degree, went in as a commission. And uh, he just, he, there was a standard that he had, right? And uh, Mason Ward is his name. And I know Mason. Do you know Mason? He was one of the most exceptional officers I got to work for. Yeah. Because he simply was laser smart, yeah. like just knew his shit in and out. And he could smell bullshit off anybody. Like if you try to tap dance or regurgitate some sort of answer, but you really didn't know, he could figure that out. And yeah. I um, I don't think that I ever really liked him, but I always respected him. I just yeah. didn't want to ever have to be on the other side of the table with him. And it was surprising to me because um, one day maybe a year or two ago, I'm having sushi, you know, someplace down the street from my house. And I'm walking through some guys like, oh, fell. And it's him. He comes up and, you know, he was the coolest guy ever. But in my mind, I was like, when he was walking up to me, I'm like, is he going to punch me? Is he, because he was such a ball busting. No, and, and but that was his job. And listen, I'm thankful for it. But I don't think we have to be that way. I think we, you know, we're kind of taught that, that you know, kind of, you know, it's you only as good as the last horse, but I think that forces you to be a different leader than you want to be. And I think the people who are better um, at that, who kind of ignore that and able to deal with that pressure, um, you know, are much better leaders on the, on the submarine force. Um, than... so, so did you discover what kind of leader you were? No, I think it was. You know, I kind of discovered that it was, you know, it's, a, it's all about empowering your people and make them successful. But, but does it, like, who did you go to? Did you have a, a former CEO that you used? No, I, I Commodore? No, I definitely have plenty of former CEOs or Commodores or PC, you know, at that time, when you're an XO, you had to go through, you know, CO school. Mm -hmm. And same thing as your CO. So I, I had a whole plethora of people to fall back on and ask them kind of questions. And and they, you know, well, Tony, you're full of shit. You know, you can't do that. Or that's dumb. Or, you know, that was the kind of stuff that you need to hear. I think that when you sit but, in those series, you have to have someone that you can sit But I think on. you never listen to it until you get kicked. <laughs> when, when well, you get, once you get put on the ground, then you start listening. Uh, I mean... I have a fairly strong stable of, of industry thought leaders that I get to lean on all the time. You know, one of them was Chris. I remember one time something happened and I called him and I was all huffy puffy over something. And he literally started laughing at me. He's like, listen. And I just remember thinking that was a good, that was one of those moments where you realize that you're still, you don't know shit, you know? No, similar conversation with Chris, which was why you care. And I was like, well, and he goes, well, that sounds like ego. Why does that 
yeah. does, does it matter in the whole scheme of things? So, you know, it, is that your ego talking or is that, does that really matter? It's like, whole, you know, it was like, it was almost an epiphany or it's like, yeah, that's true. But that was an ego talk. It, but you it, need someone to pressure test you. Exactly. No, 100% agree. So uh, what did, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you left, because I do think that there's an advantage that veterans have. I think No, that, 100% agree. I think the advantage that veterans have is, man, you get moved in jobs every two years. Your ability to quickly come up to speed, learn things and knock it out of the park is what makes us awesome. It's the, it's the cycle of reinventing yourself. Yeah, ex exactly. Or the fact you're a generalist and you know a little about anything and you can, you can lend your experience onto anything. So you've seen it all, done it all. And I, I honestly think you, you learn by leading and failing. So you've been there, you've done that for 20 something years, or you've been that for five or six years. You can't learn in a book and you can learn in a book, but you can't retain it and actually apply it. And so what we bring is the fact is our ability to reinvent yourself, learn new jobs. And we've been, you know, we've been punched in the face for however long it was. And we have all these scars and lessons learned that makes us better leaders. And I think we, we as an industry don't realize that, in, in which case we are so afraid to find that job that we we take that job that is less, you know, I'm gonna go be, I'm not saying you're working at 7-Eleven, but it's close, where you just want any kind of job so you can do that when you're selling yourself short and when you can actually accomplish so much out there. And it might even be outside your, you know, you, you and I are both in data centers with nothing to do with submarines. It's just, you know, if you take that risk and you get out there, you can actually knock it out of the park. And I don't think we do that enough as an industry. We don't give them people that freedom to fail and, and get better at themselves to get inside that industry. It's tough. It's a tough industry for that. But I agree that uh, that knife cuts both ways, right? Because you do want to create an environment where people can um, reinvent themselves, which is only done through failure of some yep. kind. And how do you do it in which you don't uh, burden the customer or the, the business as a whole, unless the business is willing to invest into your growth, right? So I think... Um, I think, you know, as a veteran that's trying to always bring in as many veterans as I can, I try to, I try to talk to fellow veterans like yourself and ask, like, what did you learn most, either as an SME, because you do learn advanced weapons, machinery, technology when you're in the military, but it doesn't necessarily instantly transcend, yep. but it does say, hey, look, I have the aptitude to learn, right? So if you, have, if you want to teach me something else, if I could draw a primary and secondary nuclear propulsion, I could probably draw a four bus distributed redundant one line yep. on electrical prediction, which is not to trivialize it, but it's not nearly as hard, right? And it's just, again, another function of acclimation where you're like, okay, so here I am. I have this ability to come in early, stay late, and volunteer for hard shit. That was the big thing when I left the military is talking to companies like, look, this is not 40 hours a week. This is going to be closer to 50, maybe in some weeks when it's hard, 60. And I'm like, I did 100 hours a week when I was in port. No, exactly. In it's, port. Yeah, you know, 100% right. agree. <laughs> so I'm like, I could still pick my teeth with 60 hours a week, right? But I still think people take advantage of us in the military because of that, though. They're like, you know, they, they're going to prey on your fears. They know exactly how much you make, and they're going to offer you enough to entice you to bring you in. But still, I mean, they're not doing it for their, you're not doing it for your benefit. They're doing it because they're, well, we gotta. We all have to start from somewhere. No, no, I agree with that. And I think you know, I, I think Overwatch does it well, and I think there's other companies that do that. But I think some people do prey upon that, that Jo or that you know whoever that chief who's afraid about getting out, and they'll pay them exactly what they need to do to get them on board, but also get them a lower level and and actually 
you know, not actually be veteran focused. Like they say they're veteran focused, but they're not. They're just they're, and I'm not saying that. Yeah, they're giving the opportunity. They're just, they're, they're just they're taking advantage of it, and I it drives me absolutely bonkers on it. It's it's a it's a emerging challenge for sure, right? Because you have people that are coming out and. I think that there's some expectations they may have coming out because we, oh yeah, and you know, Overwatch's primary line of business is owners representation, construction management, and consulting, right? Um, project management. The other side is we grew so aggressively that we were using Orion International, Orion Talent, or Bradley Morris, or Scuttlebutt, or you name the military recruiting group. And at some point, we probably put some work underneath them to staff our team. I'm like, look, why can't I just do this? myself since I had so much demand and then I would start farming it out to other parts of the industry, right? And in doing that, I had a lot of engagement with people transitioning out. And in some cases they're like, hey, I make this much in the military. I should make 50% more than that when I get out. And I'm like, if you were to go work for a contractor that's working on submarines, but if you're working in a completely new industry, like this is still an, in its infancy, this industry, would you agree? I mean, oh, yeah. there's not another industry that reinvents itself as aggressively as we do. Yeah. But it's an exciting thing because I think the advantage of that, of the emerging growth that this space has, I mean, think about it. We don't build data centers the same way today that we were a year ago, and it's not going to be the same way in a year from now. So if you can find people that are comfortable being uncomfortable reinventing themselves all the time, that's one, a good thing. That's an advantage. The second part is if you look at, um, I used to value experience a lot, right? And then I learned that it didn't matter because to that end, the way that we build data centers today is different than we did a year yep. ago. And it's going to be different a year from now. So your your experience advantage really only has a shelf life of a few quarters until what that what you became really great at is not obsolete. It's just outdated. And you have to be learning. You have to be striving to reinvent yourself or learn something new. Because if not, then as soon as you've arrived to something then there's another element like the focus that you have, you know, you're on a very necessary and targeted focus of our industry, right? You're not trying to chase down hyperscales. Nope. I don't think with that product, which is what represents the largest adoption rate of emerging technology yep. in our space. But there's this huge need for edge solution, right? So why wouldn't you bring in someone from a submarine community that's like, oh, okay, so this is how we always did it. Cool. Let's figure out not knowing that this is how we always did it. Let me let me step back and and from the outside looking in, find maybe a different way of doing things. Yeah, and, and that's reinvention. No, I agree. And you're going to approach different customers. You're going to pitch it very very differently than someone who's traditionally trying to, to to do this inside the industry, or try to sell what is edge. And that's what you know, my whole big premise is. You know, edge. It doesn't really matter as a physical infrastructure person. It all counts to a platform that we have no clue about what's going to happen, what's going to be adopted but it's gonna require something different from everyone. So it could be a data center that's on top of a building, could be in a parking garage, could be in the desert, could be in the forest, doesn't matter and I don't care. All I know is I have to have the ability to find a land and deliver it and make it turnkey all in our kind of an OPEX solution, which is, and so it makes it super simple instead of trying to define, is it five milliseconds, two milliseconds, two miles, three miles, tier two, tier three, I just don't care. Is it designed to create like a tether between availability zones? No, I think, but it it's, it. who knows? It's a platform. So the platform defines it. A smart city is going to require something different than a smart road, 
which would require something different than a CDM, which would require something different than an IoT, which would require something different than a an IXP. It's all different, and it's all going to require something different. So it essentially, it's going to come down to is you're going to have data centers everywhere, all for a specific platform, all for a specific use case. And you can't, you can't try to define it by saying, well, I'm going to define this as two milliseconds from Austin, and so I'm going to build a two megawatt data center. It's more like, here's a platform that needs 24 racks for the specific use case. All right, where do they need it? How do we deploy it? How do we make it easier for them? So, you know, you take all this management and leadership experience, because there's a big difference between those two things. But you have, I mean, think about a 38-year-old running a 4 to $5 billion submarine and all the souls that are on that boat that you're responsible for. And then um, and then you've been in the data center industry for seven years? Yeah, seven years roughly. And you've worked for some of the biggest yeah. groups in this space. What is it that you've learned in that short amount of time so far that has had the greatest awakening within you? I mean, I think it's it's just, you know, it comes down to learning that, you know, first, I think in on one side, technology drove a lot of the decisions I was making and how we we're building. But now as I cut, transform to this side of the industry, it's learning that the business actually drives it and how, how the business drives it, how do you make that product that enables that business success is what makes the difference, um, as I guess has been the biggest learning experience. So there's there's enterprise and users, there's yep. the operators, and yep. then there's the high, you know, there's the, the ecosystem, you know, the architects, the engineers, all the trades, all the people that build these things and bring them to life. Um, what have you seen as a trend in that? I mean, there's massive shifts since you started in the space. What are some of the biggest ones that jump out at you? you no, know, I think it's, you know, that you have this whole trend now of, you know, is it construction or is it manufacturing? And so it was stick build, but now you have this time to market where, me as a as a consumer would say, I hear you three years, but I want a year. So how do you build something that turns into more to manufacture you know, pre-manufacture your concrete and it's more like a label Lego assembly on site. But what's the advantages of even doing that? Uh it's all time to market. All the all these cloud you know, the clouds and platforms care about time to market. How quickly can you deploy capital and receive revenue based on what you're saying? And how quickly can you beat out your competitors in that location where you're at right now? I mean there's there's a reason why they always say first company in Mexico, you know, first company that's out of Africa, first company that's in, you know, X, Y, or Z. It's all about first time to market to grab that foothold because they know that once you put your data in, it's super tough to get your data out or your platforms out. I get that. But I mean, what would make someone so, well, first of all, what made you go to an operator from all, you mean you spent your career either in the military or on the enterprise side, what made you discover that this is the next challenge for you is being on an operator side? I mean, I think it's, I, you know, what I loved about being on the, on the consumer side was, is what I knew. So it's, it's some form of function of running submarines, whether it's, you know, mechanical, electrical, hydraulic, whatever, it's very similar to consuming that and building that. Um, but about, you know, I just, I, I look back about a year ago and I was like, well, I kind of want to build something that lasts with my own mark on it. So it wasn't just replicating a platform for SaaS or PaaS or IaaS to make money. It was what can I do differently in the space that I can look back and, you know, 10, 15 years and be proud that I did it. And maybe it's a, maybe it's, a, you know, a small deployment, maybe it's a lot of deployments, I don't know, but I wanted to kind of get in there and do something a little bit different that where I had to develop my own platform, develop my own product, and and 
and apply, you know, deploy it. And I'm, I'm, you know, whether I'm successful or not, it's based on my own merits, not based on a bunch of other things. So that product itself, right? I mean, when I ask you what's the advantage of, you know, those modular deployments, I always looked at it more as a QA, QC thing, because when you're building in a static environment like that, you don't have all the trades standing on top of each other. And that's where, you know, you're taking a lot of time out of the field, which allows you to work on elements of the program in parallel to each other, both in the static environment and the dynamic yep. one that takes place. Where a lot of the risk is at is really in the field is these trades are standing on top of each other. But um, is it, do you see that that model time to market quality wise, but does it still pencil? I think it's still pencils because it's not necessarily a money game. It's more, you know, if I can build a module, let's say a megawatt and deploy in six months as opposed to a stick build, which may be three years, um, I think it does pencil. Or if I just need small use cases and I deploy to all these 1,000 locations around the world, it's very tough to build that kind of stuff. Um, it's much easier to build as a module and, and deploy it. So how does it be no longer, where where is it, what is the, uh, the tipping point where the speed to market is so great that people would be willing to suffer an inconvenience of any kind on cost or- I, I don't know. I think it's probably somewhere around three, four megawatts or less. Is that um, it? I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, the only use case I could point to is really AWS and Brazil with what they're doing for the local zone, which is they're building out of four megawatts out of modules. And it's a time to market play and it's a, what you talked about, which is a quality of work play. Um, what are they doing with that? Are they like- co-generate to the grid and put power on the grid and peak no, shaving mode? No, I think they just, you know, they build a platform where you have power modules, cooling modules and white space modules and you Tetris that together and you make a data center. They but just it's kind of have like a, a like a parking lot lay down yeah. space and they're just static no, they stacking just, they the Tetris. Like, you know, like you play with Legos, you know, okay. you have your, your yellow Legos and your, your, right, your red Legos and you put them all together and you make something. Do you see us going that direction? Um, I think it makes sense for certain ways, you know, tying the market. I think it's, I mean, you can't do that at, you know, 5, 10, 20 megawatts, but you can do it at the smaller 2, 3, 4 megawatts where the, you know, the time to market matters, your ability to get there and deploy matters, or maybe you don't have enough space and you, you need to try to Tetris that in. I mean, it's just like, you know, let's say you have a retail data center and you're you're capped out at 10 megawatts um, and you're all, all concrete and you still have 50% utilization from, how are you going to grow that? Sort of demolishing. The only way you can do that is kind of expanding out into your, parking lot, but then now let's try to treat modules as capacity like servers. And so let's say a module takes 14 days to build, it takes you a week to ship it, and it takes you a month to permit it. Now you have a, a steady capacity, you can continue to add this this white space and you just treat it like server capacity. And you just, you, you don't overbuild like you do in a hyperscale, you, it's just in time delivery of white space. But what's the, what's the biggest factor? Is it is it designed more for those parking lot laydowns or can you put them on roofs? You can put them on roofs, you can put them anywhere. And that's the whole point is you design to the worst spec and then you mass produce it. So treat it like a dull computer. You can make- So it's a product that like, it's a, will it be UL listed, whatever? UL listed. Okay, yep. so uh, it's really a plug and play then? It's a plug and play turnkey, but you can use bus bars, PDUs, whatever you want different size racks, but you can change the mechanical electrical because that changes the production manufacturing aspect Do you see uh, operators adopting those or is that more geared and targeted towards the enterprise no, groups that are- I think it's, I think we're seeing a, a bunch of different ways to see it. I think, you know, where we're seeing now immediate term, it's, 
it's retail sites that have ran out of space. So easy way to pop this stuff in and expand their capacity. It is enterprise and telcos you need to modernize. And so instead of trying to worry about their business and shutting down racks, going from two to three, four kilowatts per position, going up to 10, they can just deploy this next door to it and long line it. Um, it's you know solving those poorly designed enterprise data centers that are 60 racks that they don't want to go to the cloud, but they don't want to go to the retail site. So you deploy on-prem for them. Um, and it's also something like, you know, studios and, and hospitals and stadiums that need, you know, AI and machine learning on-prem, but they can't do it in their AV closets anymore. So you're providing that capability to quickly, easily install it and then augment it as needed or take it away if it doesn't work out. I almost look at like, like a load bank where like during the holiday season, like let's arbitrarily say like the manufacturing retail side, you can... You could deliver them for four months during, you know, peak shopping season to where, you know, normally they're going into cloud bursting, but now they're getting this as a service. I mean, what's the big competitor for you? Is it another group that does modular solutions? Is it the stick build group? Is it the cloud? I mean, I, mean, I think it's, I know, I don't think there's everybody in this competition space because I think there's someone who will build and sell by the rack. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to build the one customer and they could sell by the rack. I'm not trying to do that. Um, and then we're not trying to give customers a lot of, you know, use our design. I can provide you cost savings using Compass Money and kind of our inroads into, you know. Oh, so our, you could, our, you're like the financial, they could, so it's like Compass Financial Services. It's, I, I provide super low dollar value because I'm borrowing at Compass rates. Also, Compass has a hierarchy with our electrical mechanical supplier. So it's not Tony Grayson, you know, 100 million. It's actually Compass 3 billion. And so I'm, I'm using that same people to buy from. And so I'm on their supply chain. I have the same kind of um, leverage that Compass has, but I'm just going at the very specific market, which is very small modular anywhere. Are there any way, I mean, like, have you packaged that around specific applications that make it no, easier for people to figure out, hey, I could use it for this or this? No, I just saying it does this, use it for what you want. I think it's, I think that's where we really need to, you know, kind of do the evangelization on there because it's like, I don't, like I could do an HPC, I could do an AI, I could do an ML, I could do an SD-WAN, I could do a compute, I could do virtualized, you know, machines. I, I don't care what you use. I'm just the wrapper that the white label wrapper that, you know, supplies that kind of capability for a customer. And so I want a person like NVIDIA to come in, deploy their GPUs, they slap NVIDIA on the side, and we're just a silent partner providing the capital to make that data center happen where they're just focused on the IP and the inside. You know, it's kind of imagine white labeling or, you know, BASF where who knows what BASF actually does, but they're behind everything and they're just the, the silent partner in the background. That's all we're trying to do. So what's the uh, what's the big push for evolutional? Like, how do you evolve that product? Is it trying to get it to, you know, um, be a smaller footprint? With, well, I think uh, it's, I mean, I think the first one really was what we've done with this iteration, which was what's the right size where we get the majority of the customers in a cost-effective solution and give them enough options where they can actually use it, but they don't break the production cycle. So, you know, it's exactly why Dell does a certain form factor for a computer where you might want something bigger, but they're not gonna do it because it breaks your production line. It makes it super cost expensive. So we have that initial Lego, if you will, of 100 kilowatts at N or 2N solution. Once we get that done, we can always stack these together and you can go out sideways. But I think there's a, another version where you build this in the one or two megawatt, in which case you have your white space modules, you have your cooling modules and you have your power modules. And that gets that higher density 
um, not higher density, but kind of, you know, larger footprints, because it's also with the smaller density, it's not that tough for me to add rid or heat exchangers or immersion if they really want it or chillers on it. It's just, it's, you know, it's designed. So they can customize all that? They can customize all that kind of stuff, as long as you don't break the manufacturing process. And what all is included in that? Uh, you instead of you know instead of a, a mechanical DX solution, you put uh, you put uh, chillers on the outside of it. What about like uh, do you have like uh, I, I'm, I'm I've seen these containers. Uh, what, tell people that are listening for the first time. I mean that business unit that is the parent company's compass for is it quantum now? No, it's I mean it's it's was originally called edge point. Yeah. And I really didn't want the word edge in it because I think edge connotates something and we're just gonna argue where it should be deployed. So I just made it quantum the smallest Oh, I see. Yeah, it's my physics okay. background. It falls music of the smallest bit of matter, smallest bit of data center. So we call it quantum, which you can Lego together. But that um, still implies that it's designed towards a very specific compute density. Uh, I mean, it, it's I mean, it's designed right now. It can it can do any compute density. It can you know reduce read which one block? I well, I've seen the container at the the parking lot. Yeah, know. one block is traditionally two n. But is it like two hundred fifty kW? No, one hundred kW two n. Okay, twelve positions, and so you know that seems to be the kind of standard block. People might want eight, people might want six, people might want 24. And people could get that without buying it? They could. It, it's an OPEX, it. total OPEX model. It's a lease model. I okay. prefer to have a LEPEX, lease model. And so it's not it's not like, you know, retail. It's actually a lot cheaper than retail. So call it wholesale at the edge. I don't know. We're still trying to figure out the marketing term for it. When but you guys do that, though, do you guys sell like the services that go with it? To... We, we It's a lights out data center. So we have a whole software layer, control the HVAC, mechanical, you have A alert on your cameras, you control security remotely. If someone's trying to break in, you have the ability to sound an alarm. You know, well, you have lux sensors on there. It's... What do you what do you see? Like so the evolution went from edge point to quantum, and then with quantum, the capabilities it sounds like have evolved as well. What do you what do you see it where where does it need to evolve towards, or is it already arrived at some evolutional pivot point where it hit a tipping point where people that I mean, this is a very prevalent term. People are very aware of these these power modules that yep. exist. And what is it that's stopping people from just racing more towards that? I think it's is it there to be honest, if you go to purposely build a design a module, it's expensive. If you have, you know, if you go to an engineer and have them design something, all these companies will do it for you, but you're gonna pay for it. Um, I think if you look at it from a manufacturing aspect we have give the customer a lot of choices, but not break the manufacturing process, we can actually build it cheaper than a regular traditional customer that's out there. We can actually build it shorter. We're building our modules right now, and don't quote me on this because we're finishing up our prototype, but I think we're gonna be at 14 to 21 days to build a module because we're doing it, we're not using welding, we're not using concrete, we're using a composite, which is more sustainable. That's everything's bolted together, so more tolerances, cheaper labor, everyone can work on top of each other because you don't put the wall into the, the end part. It's a total ground up thinking of how you build these modules in a true manufacturing process. So um, I think we're all aware of the massive pressures that exist in supply chain. Yep. Has that <clears throat> impacted you guys? Um, <clears throat> I would say if I didn't have the compass name, yeah, it would have impacted me a lot. I think with a compass name, I just say, hey. Yeah, they have such a massive. They have such a, a massive purchasing. And to be honest, strength. I am not buying anything. I mean, 
mechanical spec to a certain extent, but you want your, you know, the customization to minimize. And so we're building, you know, we're trying to take as much off their assembly line as we humanly can. So they're already building it globally. We're just putting in our units. Like, I don't want bespoke stuff. I want, you know, stuff they're building in bulk. Stuff that that's I, easy to maintain too, right? Easy to maintain. And that's why, you know, I got super cute with this module design. I was like, you know, Tony, technical person, we're going to do fluid economization. We're going to have a 1.05 PUE. But in the end, who's going to maintain that? You know, you're dependent on Joe Bob, the sheriff, who's also the plumber and the electrician to go out and fix a mechanical unit. He's going to look at that fluid economizer and say, I have no clue. And so it's, you know, you can build for the edge, but I think it really has to be super, super rugged. In which case, you know, you if an HVAC goes down because you're 2N, you don't want to care about that. I mean, a truck roll is super, super expensive. And so you just want to, next time they come out the fixer, the, the place to filter is they fix the HVAC too. It's, you know, so it's how do you mass produce something that's super rugged that can go anywhere and offer a incredible amount of value? Because the, to be honest, the IP is not on the module. I mean, it's our module design is different, but it's on everything that goes inside of it, whether it's bare metal, virtualized machines, an SD-WAN, like that's what makes the money. That's where the IP is at. So where's the where's the sweet spot? What's the strike zone look like for that product? Like who's the who's the ideal candidate? That... I mean, right now, I'm the ideal candidate is you know it's enterprises looking to modernize, it's telcos looking to modernize, it's retail and hyperscale looking to expand. They almost treat it like server capacity, so they aren't straining all this power. It is encapsulating companies who are focused on compute and virtualized machines, providing the wrapper for them to go anywhere. It's SD WAN solutions. It's you know it's it's all over the place. In factors, you know, there's forty, there's seventy seven point three billion right now in middle mile, last mile. That's all going to be edge. So, but all those factors that you're talking about are technology, right? But you were talking about how technology. You thought the technology drove the business, but the business is what drives the technology. So that, I guess, I, the way it, I look at it is through the optics of a CFO, as an example, yeah. where they're looking at it and they're saying. Uh, everybody looks at what they're doing in this space because let's be honest, I think that most of the people that we engage with, they're armed to the teeth, right? They're pretty sophisticated yep. um, buyers and they they kind of have an idea of what they want. At least, you know, they, they have an idea what the strike plate, you know, the strike zone looks like. So for them, what do you, what do you say to the business? You know, the business side is you got to have the ability to deploy something quickly anywhere. So you don't know what your future platform is going to be. You don't know where it's going to have to go. You don't know how much you're going to need it. And you're just not going to be able to hire a team to make it happen. So it's when that your team develops that platform, whatever that is, self-driving cars, flying cars, you're going to deploy the infrastructure for that quickly. And you're going to have to depend on teams to be able to do that kind of stuff. So it's, it's kind of you have to not be rigid, like I'm going to build in downtown Chicago. I'm going to build in Montreal. You gotta have the flexibility to go, give me a lot and long and we can deploy something for you. Oh, by the way, it's an OPEX model, so it's not gonna affect your PL aspect of it. It's just an, an operating I think that's the big kick, right? There is that I mean, I don't think I realized until just now that it's only it's preferred to be only an OPEX model, right? Yep. It's preferred and we can manage it for you. Like you don't have to make a knock. We can have our own, you know, knock you take can have care your of own it. Knock monitor. We'll dispatch. Yep, we'll dispatch. I mean, you still get the alerts and everything if you want to. You can go Look at the you know the cameras and the weather stations on wherever you want, um, but we'll take care of all the operations and let you know how it's happening. So you don't have to hire this, you don't have to hire a separate site selection team. You don't have to hire a separate operations team. I mean, 
go ask a data center person to go find, you know, a thousand sites across the world that have 2,000 square feet that can handle 300 kVA, and they're within a quarter mile of fiber. Everyone's going to balk at that. It's you, you know. When I when I first started in this industry, one of the first jobs I had was with a company that was formerly known as Active Power, right? Have you? Do you ever remember no, that? No. Have you ever heard of Pillar? Mm-hmm. So they're almost the. Um, the they were the original powerhouses, you know, behind yep. Rotor UPS and based in Europe. But Europe actually created almost like this false economy um, by really taxing the shit out of batteries and rotary, you know, battery free technology became something that was um, really, really critical over there. Right. Not just not just from the footprint. I mean, like you could have. A rotary UPS system is typically a lot smaller than a traditional static double yep. conversion UPS with battery cabinets. And real estate is a premium in some markets, more so in New York City than it is in Texas, right? Yep. But those factors, you know, that whether it's a socialist economy or real estate's at a premium, there are certain things that um, make that application easy to discover as the primary or easier solution yep. versus the one that says, hey, we can do that, but what's going to be faster, what's going to be cheaper, whatever. Um, we were doing modules or powerhouses, you know, for in partnership with HP actually back then, where we were like basically taking a UPS, ATS and a generator and put in one, okay. one module and putting, you know, the all the IT infrastructure yep. with the mechanical permutation and the other, marrying them together. And we could put them on a crane and put them on a roof or we could put them in a parking yep. lot. But what has been the biggest barrier, you think, to getting the adoption? Because that was I, years ago. I that think was... it's I think it's this total. We've been, you know, decentralized and been decentralized. Now we're back to being decentralized, and I think it's just the drive of technology. Um, it's you know, kind of regulations. It's what you know, FinServe requirements are. It's GAIA-X. It's personal privacy. It's just, or it's even costs of you know where the data is at. You know, it's stop sending the data to the cloud, bring the platform to where the data is being generated. I think all this stuff is having an effect on all this, all this stuff right now. And, you know, your phone right now, is, to be honest, hasn't generated a lot that a lot of data. We actually have true 5G millimeter wave. Your phone's going to generate a heck of a lot of data. It's going to be your it's going to be your refrigerator that wants to order a new beer. It's going to generate a lot like that stuff can't go to the cloud. It's got to go to someplace local. And so I think all you know, it's it's your Tesla. If you if someone's a quarter mile away that hits a pothole, do you really want that going back to Ashburn to decide if your car gets it? No, you're going to have to have some kind of local regulation that's going to, to to see if that matters and push that data out to all the Teslas in that area. I think it's it's just the technology is just it's evolving, and the problem comes down to from financial sense is you don't know what that is and you don't know where it's going to be, and so you can't build ahead of it. So how when it breaks, how do you quickly deploy it? and integrate it instead of waiting five or six years to actually get the revenue from it. I'm waiting to see, uh, there's always a tipping point, right? Malcolm yep. Gladwell has that narrative. I mean, I think Simon Sinek picked up with some of his TED Talks and talked a lot about how, you know, there's a lot, let's just say 100% of our market that gets it, right? But yep. there's really only about 4% that you're really targeting to, and they get it just as well as you get it. And you know, the early adopters that follow, because this is a, a, a herd mentality, Right, people are always hesitant to see to be the first to adopt something because of the risks that are associated to that, and then and then once they see that the you know it's safe to go in the water, then they all dive in, yep. right? And how far are we from seeing a big tipping point to where we're building 
like right now when I got in the space, I remember one megawatt deals were big, right? And I remember, you know, I was on the phone with one of our clients today and uh, we're gonna do a multiple phases of 14 to 16 megs at a click, right? And that's no big deal to them because they're doing that like all over the place, yep. multiple different operators. So, you know, we see these huge shifts going back and forth on what size appetite people are buying blocks at at a time. At what point, and will it be an emerging technology stack? Will it be, you know, like you said, IoT was the big engine for things, but now we have autonomous driving vehicles, as you talked about, or, you know, drone technology, not to mention AR, VR, AI, and EIO and all those things, right? So what, what will be that point where um, enough people have discovered the value in this product to where we just start seeing that becoming just as mainstream or just as prevalent as we see 12 megawatt deals going down, you know, every every quarter. Yeah, I think it's going to depend. You know, I think you're seeing it now as a quick solution because it's a time to market play. That's what it really comes down to. It's a quick time to market managed OPEX play is what's solving it. I think that what the, the technology that's out there for those platforms is still yet to be de developed. I think once we have true 5G and your phone and those end users, you are generating that much data, it's going to force everyone to re-architect how they're developing solutions. For what that. will force them though? Is it like uh, the eyeball content, video caching? Is I, think it's the, I think it's just the amount of data your phone will be able to produce and have the bandwidth to get that data out there will force into some kind of re-architecture of it. What's that data? Is it being driven by the consumer or is it business? Uh, to driven by consumer. Okay. So what will that data look like, do you think? Uh, I'll, I don't know. It's just going to be a lot of it. Well, what do you see? Uh, what are some of the emerging technologies that you think that are going to be faddish versus those that are going to just continue to explode? I mean, I think it's, you know, everyone's trying to do the true 5G. I mean, they're already talking 6G, but 5G, we really don't have right now because it's not millimeter waves. So it's really not getting the, the bandwidth in the, that, we're, that we think we're going to generate right now. Once we hit that, I think each user and each, you know, refrigerator will generate enough data where you're going to have to cache stuff locally. You can't, it'll be too cost prohibitive to send it to the cloud. Your local whatever it's going to have to, arc, you know, kind of arbitrate where that data goes and how it's used. So what will that local look like, though? I mean, like, where will all my refrigerator data Yeah, go? but I think it's, I think, I mean, your total ground re-up architecture of, of what's happening right now. You can't use traditional 5G. I mean, you see it with, you know, I think Autonomous Institute has developed these pins right now, and these are, you know, kind of 5G Wi-Fi enabled things that go on each street corner. That's the kind of infrastructure that is needed but it's all going to backhaul to a local place, which is going to backhaul to a bigger place, which is going to backhaul to an even bigger place. But you're talking about like city infrastructure. Now. City so, infrastructure. So that changes who the target audience is because it's no longer an enterprise. It's it's a, a level of government that needs to do that to support the growth. Yeah, I think, I and mean, that's the problem right now. It's, you know, is AT&T or Verizon going to be able to tell their bosses, hey, we know we just spent all this money on 5G. Now we're going to have to double down and, and develop more on, on how do we, you know, get the, the most out of what these platforms are developed right now. And I think that's the holdup right now. That's why you're seeing all this private, you know, government kind of stuff coming down with smart cities and or smart roads and or government grants to kind of get in there to give them that kind of infrastructure bandwidth to piggyback off of so they can write their platforms. Are there any security advantages to having those quantum 
You know, I, that's a good question. I think, you know, the good thing about it, it's super local. Um, you know, I think you can put enough physical security in there to alert people if there's problems to it. Um, and they aren't calling home. So it's not like a an outpost calling back to Ashburn, which could be across the national lines, which, you know, kind of violates that, that security aspect of it. So I do think since it's hyper-local, you know, you do have that personal privacy kept locally where it's not pushed to some data center, but there are, you know, we're trying to figure this out right now is how do we make these super secure in the middle of nowhere that could still be lights out and autonomous, but still can maintain that data security and that PPI security. Is there a, uh, you know, there's, there's a hub and spoke of the fiber, right? We all know, you yeah. know, we, NFL cities, and then you have all the suburbs and all the things that tether around it. Do you see this as the solution to fill the gaps and all the blind spots? No, I think it's to a certain extent, yeah. So it, let me give you an example. So if I'm a, let's say I develop this AI, you know, AI machine learning program, which looks at an MRI database and compares what MRI you have to that database and provides a prognosis to the radiologist that says out of a thousand, this has been the prognosis and this is the most likely thing. There's no way you're going to tie that back to some place that's going back to a hyperscale data center. It's going to be on-prem because it, it's latency sensitive. There's a lot of data stored, and it's going to be too much bandwidth to go back and forth. And so that's the kind of stuff that will need to be local. And so it kind of gets out of this hub and spoke. It's more about, you know, how do you put that compute layer or the platform layer close to where the data is being generated? I think it goes back again to that herd mentality, right? <clears throat> We could rationalize how solid this, you know, the, it's a transparent and predictable delivery model. You yeah. have all the infrastructure in a um, very mature vendor management inventory program that you guys yeah. have created. But um, the hesitancy, the, you know, people, um, it takes a unique person to be the first, right? The, the people that are standing in line for eight hours to get the iPhone, you know, um, there's a certain person that wants to be first, right? They yep. want to have that technology. One of the things that I always thought of about that technology that you're talking about, these edge pods, is to test them or introduce them and show the resiliency of them was when I worked for a data center operator, you know, you got cutovers, you're doing maintenance, you're doing yep. all kinds of things. And I was like, you know, we roll up engines all the time for cutovers. Um, why couldn't we just put a, a module there for a month while they cut everything over? Yep. And then, especially if it could run at two in, you know, and you're not moving, you know, all production over at one click, but even then it's like a lifeboat that you could incrementally do little pieces and parts and yep. use it. Um, like whipsaw it, you could bang it around quite a bit if you were to just be piling on loads and transferring through distribution and and tethering like a lifeboat onto that while you're ripping out and replacing this. So yep. all these aging infrastructure data centers that are out there that, um, I mean, think about it. The genesis of this vertical was what, late 80s or late 90s, right? And um, a lot of data centers that were built in the early 2000s are having a lot of challenges right now, okay. you know, a lot of outdated mechanical issues or end of life on the electrical. And, um, you know, retrofitting those sites takes a very unique skill set much like if you're i mean if i'm a gp doctor right but i went to medical school doesn't mean that i should be the person that's going to help diagnose your brain cancer right yeah. so 
that's a live environment where people normally can measure the downtime by lost revenue per second in hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, right? Um, how does that application um, get introduced to where people can use it, like the operators can use it as an example, and just slide it around their sites as they need to do cutovers or ripping out and replacing, you know, um, you know, um, switchboards downstream of the, you know, UPS output or so, I don't know. I'm just arbitrarily saying there's got to be places in where this makes sense for when you need to do something. No, I agree. And that's what we're seeing most use cases right now. It's that it's that enterprise augmentation. Mm -hmm. It's the replacement for existing kind of older data centers where they cut over to this and it's their full-time solution for five years or they built something in the background. Eventually, we take it away on this kind of stuff. So we're seeing- That would be all okay that, though, right? Oh yeah, it's an, we're trying to do an operating lease model. So it's, yeah, you sign a five-year lease, you can buy it fair market value at the end or we'll take it away at the end. I don't see why you wouldn't kind of look at it and approach it the same way you would a load bank. Nope, it's, that's what we're trying to provide a service that's rentable. Now, granted, we want a five or seven-year lease term. Um, but until but, you get to that, like yeah. you still got to get people to just, I think the toe in the water, right? Where people are, okay, so now I've seen this work. It, we we were able to lean on it during an emergency. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's who you run it to. So, I mean, it could be, let's say, let's say the movie industry, great example. So like a, a Sony production will not sit there and they won't take something like a particular production cycle of six months to a year, but there's people that rent to that production cycle. And so you could rent to the providers of infrastructure to that studio for five years, but that little inf that little module get, might get moved down to Atlanta, might get moved to, you know, kind of uh, Hollywood, might get moved up to Montreal as the production cycles change. And for us, it's always going to be the same. So it might have, let's say, five racks of compute or seven with eight racks of storage for one, or might have something that's VFX intensive, like they don't use green screens anymore. They use the, these big screens. Yeah. Um, it might be nine racks of compute, three racks of, like, I don't care what you put inside of it. I'm just trying to provide the wrapper that can go anywhere under an OpEx kind of managed solution. And so that is makes it super mobile, super configurable. It makes it easy for the customer to use instead of trying to go to a retail data center and, and trying to build out a solution that may or may not work for you. They may not even have the space for you. But to that end, think about it like this. Right. Um, the United States is broken into multiple. Yep. Like if you were to not to over trivialize the U.S., but if I were to tell you about the Northeast, the first thing that would come up in your mind would be finance. Right. Headquarters of all the banks. Yep. And if I were to go to the West Coast, then it's all high tech. And I mean, we're sitting in Texas right now. This is, you know, the headquarters of the energy vertical. Right. And every if you look at different patches, you know, we obviously know where most of the automo automobiles yep. in America are built. But. The buying cycles, uh, just like in Hollywood, like the the production cycles of movies, they're not three to five to seven years, right? So I could see how cloud bursting would still be a preferred outlet because they don't know what they don't know. But they do know if you're H&R Block, you're going to do 75 to 80% of your business in a four-month span of the year, right? That means they're going to need a lot of compute at that period, and then yep. they won't after that. Right, but there's other groups like that. Whether it's someone in um, Hollywood that's needing all that, so they could do all their CGI, and then when the movie's done being produced or edited, then maybe they don't need that right now. Maybe they have another movie to roll it into. But yep. if not, is there 
advantages to having a mobile No, I think solution? there's definitely a mobile, and I think this is where you diverge from typical hyperscale business models, which is we wanted a 30-year triple net lease with a certain customer. I think we have to be more nimble of what we're trying to do with these smaller data centers because you know, they're cheaper, you can take a little more risk on them. And so what's that risk in Hable? Is it a, do you sell it? Do you do an IP-based mod, you know, IP-based um, sale just based on the, the the design that you're doing? Is it a joint venture restaurant model where they're profitable and then you get 2% off the profits because when, once they're profitable, after you sell it to them, I mean, there's plenty of ways you can skin the cat to make this easier from or make this beneficial for both companies because what you really want to do is be a partner to the company you don't want to just be a provider to them and so i think strategic partner a strategic partner yes exactly and so what you want them is using you for the next 15 20 years and so how do you but how do you make it very easy for them to adopt that where you benefit from it too i think what i'm trying to say is i see the value in it yep but i still see the i see the downside sometimes being that like again, going back to the load banks, those things get their asses kicked all day. Yeah. And then when they come off those, you know, we get done with IST, then they go back to a shop and someone does maintenance on it and fixes all the cables and, that were destroyed. So, and, and, maybe, and maybe that's the future right now. I We just don't know. I, I think just think it's the, the crawl, walk, yeah, run into the space. No. Like if you want people to adopt that, no. test it. And I think that's what we're doing right now is, you know, we have two prototypes that are coming off the line here in November. You know, one most likely will go to a movie studio, most, one most likely will go to a compute company. And we're going to test them out and see which, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And we have a couple of sales coming up for a retail company. And then we have, uh, you know, kind of enterprise replacement company. So, you know, we're trying to really crawl on these, you know, kind of original or these new deals that we're doing right now to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And then we'll adapt from them. Well, if it's a as a service, which yep. really is what you're trying to do. Yep. I mean, those people that do, you know, like I just had, I had Aaron Johnson on here um, from Sunbelt and I've sat down with him a bunch of times trying to understand the economics on load banks. I'm just, uh, I do that with everything, you know, um, I'm talking to a UPS guy, I'm going to want to understand the economics on those things. They know when they get done with those load banks, they're, they're not deployed 365 days a year. They know how many days they have to be going before they pencil out. But like for this... I'm just trying to figure out a, a way in which it gets introduced in a way that mitigates the risk by the person or the group because um, it at least allows them to scratch the paint and test drive it. And then no. they could see it and then they could discover their own application oh, and no. use for it. I mean, you know, we're hoping that it's going to be treated exactly like a regular data center, that once you move in, you're never going to move out because it's almost impossible. I agree with that. Yeah, And so, but I don't, we're hoping that's the case and we'll try to figure out how it is. I mean, we have to deal with certain you know, kind of accounting rules or we're trying to stick with the operating lease terms. But, you know, there's a, a lot more room to be creative in a small CapEx environment that we're putting up um, in this space as opposed to, you know, 100, $150 million data center where there's probably less room to be creative. What I'm saying is instead of trying to find one client that takes it for three years, what if you had six clients that no. borrowed it multiple different incremental periods over the course of those years? Yeah, there's mobilization. No, and that's what, I mean, that's what, you know, you're expected to get I mean, your, your capital return back at a certain time frame, and then it's meant to go around and, and be used for different customers, and you're just getting a capital inlay when you've already I been can see a client work. buying in on having one on their bench 
as long as they could drag it all over their no, portfolio like, yeah. and use it for tethering or lifeboating. And that's, that's exactly what it's, it's meant to be. It's meant to be transported anywhere. And so, yeah, it could just be sitting in there. Static would thing. be great. No one would, I mean, who doesn't want to have 10 of them sitting still on a five-year modified growth, triple net, whatever, or, but have it sitting there static. I mean, great, great example is, you know, but there's a certain cloud company right now that loves to test out their DCIM BMS system already integrated for their, you know, kind of their commissioning. What if that just showed up in a trailer and you didn't have to wait for the whole thing to be built out? Like I'm talking your service. That's speed of market. That's, that's a huge that's, impact. That's speed of market. So all your sensors are the right sensors, except you're not relying on the network racks. You aren't relying on the servers. You get this module, it comes in, you plug it into it, you test your entire data center before your network side's built. And now you know if all your sensors work. So if you have a uh, really mature data center operator and they have the same product in arbitrarily uh, Virginia as they have in Phoenix, yep. it makes a lot of sense then to them. Uh, I think that when I worked for a wholesale operator, I would have been like, I don't know if I need it there all the time. I definitely don't know if I need, I, I may need it for three or five years, but I doubt I needed it at that one location yep. all the time. But I could see myself easily sliding it around as needed yep. and using it to support clients, you know, demand. We, we, I mean, you get into the energy vertical, you always have those groups that are like, look, I have a peak demand of arbitrarily a megawatt, but most of the year I run it at 200 kW, yep. right? But when I have that burst, What's, I would like that to be here for that four months. If not, then I'll shot it to my other site for those four. I mean, so. that's where I think it's, it's, you should be treating it much like your server capacity. And so you shifted it. You you bring it as needed, or you shift it as you need it for your business. You should not be treating it as a a fixed asset. That's not what it's meant to be. So I'm, I guess I'm, I'm just trying to always look for ways in which, like I'm trying to figure out what that narrative looks like for guys like us that are out there with operators all the time, or half our clients are enterprise end users. No, I mean I think it's you know it's it's a movable asset that is just a a white space for your servers that can be moved wherever you want it. So but there's a lot of clients that want white space, large aggregate volumes of it, Yeah, but they want it like, I don't think I ever had a client that we were doing a, a program for that didn't need access to the space prior to us having the space commissioned. It seems like the ideal roll up to put somewhere and be like, cool, you leave it right here and we'll be live with your site in two months from now. And if you want to shift it over, shift it over or, or leave it there. Yep. You know, and I guess I'm trying to figure out who's well, the buyer. Well, imagine you're a cloud and you're going to a place that takes you, let's say, three or four years to build something. What if you could pick a module for your border network to go in with all your CDN platforms to go in? Once you're, what's that's live? Are you live in that country? That some of your platforms are already generating revenue that you're, you already have your border network in? Or is it when all the rest of your, you know, your, your services go live? Well, what about all these migrations? Okay, what about all the people that are looking to migrate? And, you know, on-prem, off-prem, cloud, whatever, but you know, how many times, I mean, there's companies that make a great living just doing pick and moves, right? Yeah. But what if someone rolled up one of these things and did the whole migration to a truck and then drove it? No, you where? could do that. It's a, you know, that's that snowball to a larger, much larger effect, yeah. That would work too. Have you guys tried to, because I see that, demand all the time. No, it's, I mean, I think for us, we're just trying, we're trying to work with partners who are smart in that kind of stuff. So, you know, I would love to be in the storage space or the server space, the virtual, you know, machine space or whatever space. In the end, we're just trying to do a very, trying to do a good job at the wrapper. And so 
we're partnering with those kind of companies who can offer those services now to customers. And so they take care of the IP and the inside. We take care of the wrapper and all the logistics. Uh, and they're the front page people who hire us. And so we're just support their business. And mm. so I, I agree with you to some of those locations, but in reality, it's for those customers we're working with to figure out the business need and we're there to support them. So what's the channel? How do you get this product to market? Is let's, it... it? We're trying to build those channel partners right now. And so it's, you know, what's if let's say you're a compute company and you've been trying to sell your services, but you'd limited the retail space, but now you work with us and now you aren't limited to retail space anymore. And so now you can go to a enterprise company and say, I can provide you a virtualized server platform on-prem, which we'll manage in my house in our own IT units. And it's just our IT. And if you don't want to be at that location anymore, you can go take it to another location. It, don't have to change the exactly, box. Exactly, exactly. And we're just the white label supplier of the unit with this, the white people in the background. So that channel then, like, so there's no one that has a stronger relationship in each market, in my opinion, than the local manufacturers reps. Cause they're the ones that, you know, you go to Dallas, right? That's there's think of engineering computer rooms up there, right? Those guys have a box at every event in Dallas. They know every contractor and yep. vendor in Dallas and they, um, they're all reselling engines. They're selling powerhouses. They're selling, Everything. Yep. I mean, or it's it could be just consulting firms that hey, like the MEP firms, like the yeah, MEP firms that hey, you put you, them into a spec or something. You do a service for it. Well, let's say you know, we come to you to figure out solutions for us. So here's a white space solution they can offer. We're, we're a managed service. We're already servicing your enterprise. It's leaking. You come to us to go fix it. Now provide this module for you. We're already managing it. You know, and it's just a different extension of that. Or it could just be part of the construction, that's part of the actual bid for whatever that customer that is. And we're not trying to be cute about it. We're trying to work through customer or partners that partner with us that need our solution. We're just the quiet people in the background. I think that there's a lot of, I don't think that people understand how flexible those solutions are. And that's what we're just trying to be, is super flexible. I, I think there's a lot of companies that have tried to do it all. Like I'm gonna go out there, I'm gonna do modules, but I'm also gonna be an SD-WAN or virtual machine. I'm going to sell by the quarter rack, and those companies have not done well. What we're just trying to do is focus on the fundamentals that enables your business to be successful. And for all this other stuff, I just I don't I, I can do it. So you need to move it, no problem. Opex, no problem. Small, no problem. Big, no problem. You know, we're just trying to be as flexible as we possibly can to enable you to be successful on that. You develop the use cases for it. Like I'm not trying to go in there and say. Um, Mr. Enterprise customer, I'm going to provide you a virtualized machine service in this on-prem models. I'm, I'm hoping someone sells that to them and they use us to make that enable it, to make it happen. I, I keep going back to the manufacturer rep model because in many ways they're already doing it. They're doing, they're your competition because nope. they're, they have an align, they have a line card with everything and it doesn't, it's, uh, no, I would agree. And so the manufacturer rep recommends a solution. And it could be it could be a purpose-built solution, you know, from their traditional wholesale distributors, or it could be an OPEX solution that's temporary. Well, what I'm saying is most of those manufacturer reps are already band-aiding together something. They're trying to do what you're doing where you've productized it and you elicited it. They're doing it already because again, going back to the strength of the manufacturer rep per market is they're omnipresent. Like they're they're saturating that market with all their time. hundred percent of their focus is on one yep. market. And uh, 
you know, when you come from the manufacturer side, not the rep side, from the manufacturer side, you're trying to go an inch, you know, deep and a mile wide, where those guys are just trying to go a mile deep in that one market. And and they own those relationships. Those relationships are, I mean, they know what the barbecue is in the backyard of that guy's house because they were over there for his kid's and, birthday. And, and that's exactly it. No, we don't want to. In fact, we, we price this out so... We're making a margin on it, but we're not getting rich off it. What we want is a strategic partnership. And so that ma- that owner's rep comes in, recommends a solution, they get another percentage on top of it. So the end customer pays, let's say, $200 per kilowatt per month. We're only we're only charging 110 The manufacturer reps get 90 for using us. We're trying to leave enough leeway for the channel partners to recommend those solutions where they can still get make some money off it too for those kind of recommendations. I think there's just a lot of a uh, lot more in the roadmap of it, right? Because um, trying to crawl, walk, run through it as a buyer, not just as the oh. person that's trying to sell it, but um, I see it as a stepping stone to get to Compass's bigger campus type yep. of thing, right? Where you could literally go and, and anchor these things somewhere and maybe longer leases are not as great. I, I, I mean... Obviously, Jared would want to slap me in the mouth if I said something like that, right? Because the fu- finance is a factor, right? No, but I think, you know, but a 30-year lease makes sense on a $100 million data center, you know, a 30-year lease. It's not going to necessarily make sense at a 100-kilowatt data center. And so you're right. We're well into the crawl phase on this one still. I think I, the I, industry is. Yeah, exactly. I, I think don't the industry is all struggling to figure out how to we, we know we have a product that is maybe a little, I think five years ago, it was ahead of the curve. Yep. I think it was just too mature for the market to be able to understand how to buy it. And I think we're in that part now where people are always looking for, I think the people were, um, like I said, I don't think there's an industry that reinvents itself as aggressively as us. And even things that were once looked at and looked over, people will still revisit because the timing may be right. But I think that there is, more to that narrative, that roadmap on how this this product that's very prevalent. I mean, you can't go to yep. a conference and not have someone talk about no. a solution or a product that serves an element of one application that falls within this yep. huge, flexible variety of options that you could use this thing for. And I just don't think that people have arrived on their own yet on how they can do it. No, I agree. And that's why the evangelization matters right now. That's why we're trying to get out the conference to talk about it. You know, there's a million use cases for this. I don't know what they are. All I'm trying to enable is that we give you that Lego that you can go out there and build a business off of it. And we're trying to, you know, dip our toes into it and and figure out what works for it best. And that's what we're doing with our first two prototypes here in November. And we'll see what happens from there. But I... You know, I don't know where they're going to end up, and I'm not quite sure. Well, were they again? The it was a it was a movie house that was using it for production, so they could compute. You no, know, it's, it's one of them most likely to a movie house that's you know move. You know, they can go anywhere, and they can you know over yeah. a three year period compute, change out the 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 storage, whatever you want inside this movie house. And the other one is, you know, I'm a I'm a bare metal service compute, and I usually go to retail sites, but now I don't have to. I can put something on prem, so they're going to put this on side their campus, and it looks like an iPhone. So we went. I mean, AHJs do not like containers anymore. They like something that looks sweet, and so ours looks like a big iPhone. So it's slick. It, you know, it's very shiny. Yeah, I guess of the no, optics no matter. Seams. Yeah, optics matter, and so they're going to put it on site and put all their kind of compute services in there and use it as a use case to sell the service. Um, and those are the first units where they're most likely going to go. And then we have. You know, some of the older, um, I shouldn't say older, but 
uh, the previous generation are going to go fill spot capacity to retail site that you know they've ran out of. They have customers that come in or they want to basically take down 36 racks with them and they don't want to turn them away. So they're just going to put spot capacity in with us. I think the case study with the content creator for like uh, movie content, I think that is the easiest one to transit. Like that transcends. And I'll tell you how, like everybody with a cell phone now is a content creator. Nope. You can make a whole movie on TikTok, right? So if there's going to be um, pent up demand for more content creation, you almost have to have a network solution for these things for no, them as well. And that's what, you know, they're, we're working with partners on that too. And so we're, but not, I'm by no means the expert on the compute and the, the network solutions. We're just trying to partner up with, if you take this, here's a network solution, an SD-WAN solution, an on-ramp for you, you know, cross-connects for you. Here's a compute spectrum solution we recommend and, and you just pick and choose what you want to develop. So if you're an enterprise though, and you're in arbitrarily uh, Virginia, and you want to be in Chicago or Dallas, Central U.S., the latency doesn't allow you um, to just go from one site to the country to the next, depending on, you know, you could have, um, you know, availability zones for, you know, the metroactive replication. But can you not just find a piece on the map well, I, and I, put a network, if an enterprise wanted to be like, I'm going to put a network node right here yep. Um, and I could tether them across the country in places that real estate is not at a premium. And that's how I could daisy chain you to reduce your latency as an example or something. So you could get all the way to uh, Seattle. No, I think it's definitely a solution. It's not the solution for everyone though. And so I, I get it. And that makes sense to me. And that's why, you know, Megaport and Equinix and all these people are doing very, very well as carrier hotels, you know, neutrality, flexential, all those people, but there's some people who that doesn't work. That latency doesn't, that doesn't work. They need us a lower latency. They need to be closer to the customer. And, you know, we're just trying to be a part of that, that ecosystem as well. Hmm. I got you. Um, well, what do you, like, in the next five years, what do you see this product industry-wide, not just with what you're doing to try to champion or re-engine, you know, re-lead that, that, that offer, offer or, or solution where do you see us? Where do you see the industry in five years with this application? You know, I think it's it's interesting because I think, you know, I what I really, really hope is we're going to make a lot of edge-type customers or enterprise-type customers super successful, meaning I don't think we'll ever... Like who? Like what would that be? I mean, like a, like a, an, a compute company, an SD-WAN company, okay. a production company. Like we will make them successful by giving them the capability to deploy their services anywhere. Whether, so they could support like, a, let's say their services are managed services. So they can, yeah, they can manage, they can, they, they can support an enterprise, they can support a city, they can support X, Y, or Z. Hmm. We're just doing it like, you know, we make Cloudflare awesome, Alchemy even better, Stackpath better, you know, Sixtera better, Vapor.io better, you know, you name it. All these kind of companies, we can make them better by giving them the freedom to go wherever they want at a, a low cost dollar. Is there any um, emerging technology that this product lends itself to the greatest advantage? And uh, like as an example, you have um, esports. No, I would say you know, kind of. I th I think it's a couple of them. I think it's um, HPC machine learning. So manufacturing on site, hospitals needed on site, even stadiums. There's this awesome platform called Waitlist. I think it's at the Detroit Pistons. So if you 
get up from your seat and you got to go take a leak or you want to go get a beer, it tells you the closest. It uses all these cameras to amalgamate all this information. It tells you where to go get a leak where you don't have to wait or where you can get oh, the closest I you. beer. So I think all these kind of AI, ML, camera stuff, you know, are kind of quick solutions right now that kind of need this kind of stuff. And then there's, you know, kind of the, the studio place. And I think there's still platforms being developed. I mean, there's, of course, the on-prem gaming, but a lot of that stuff you can do right now with local pops. Like, you aren't doing this competitive. I mean, I imagine if you're doing those, you know, those um, the drones when you're going around the, the stadium, I think they need some kind of horsepower in the parking lot. But um, I think it's, it's more near term. It's just kind of this point cases of, augmented existing AV rooms for to account for these I can see higher that. capacity racks. Hell yeah. And that's, that's why I said esports. That's just the bridge. I mean, and who knows what the, I don't know what someone's going to develop in the future. And so we just want the capability when, you know, whether it's VMware or someone comes out with this widget that needs to go everywhere that we can provide them that service to go everywhere. What happens if like um, arbitrarily uh, Intel, AMD, Qualcomm, whoever it is that comes out with a new chip What's the ripple effect of you because of that? Technology? I mean, I think it depends on the density of the chip. I mean, there's, but you know, it's just because it gets denser doesn't mean your rack density is going to go up. Because guess what? You don't need to put many cores in a server if your if your chip density, you know, if your yeah. the power density goes up. So I think it really depends on the customers. But what we want to be able to do is provide that flexibility through a use of, you know, mechanical cooling and or chillers to get those higher densities to meet the most amount of customers. So to that end, you know, because you mentioned HPC first, what is the density capacity? How, I mean, I mean if I, I get 100 kW, I could go two racks at 50? Yep. Um, or, you know, I think once you start to get to the HPC, they're typically not at 2N. What drives right now the 2N is the mechanical, and you'll switch that out to a chiller with root or heat exchanger. So that kind of limitation goes away because you can purpose build that in the same kind of footprint. Um, but most of those are N. Like they don't want the UPS. They don't they don't want but the they're infrastructure. Still high density. They're but they're still high density. Plus, so twenty four. And then I just need my power grid to come in and supply that. It's not UPS driven. And the mechanical is now driven by chillers. So in theory you could have a megawatt in one of these little modules through chillers. Without using water. With, no, with using like a reader or heat exchanger. Okay. So using water through chillers. I got you. But so, not not on. We can use on chip too. It doesn't really matter. But some form of water cooling, you can do that in that small of an area. But most of them, like I said, they want N for their HP. They don't care about if that goes down. This goes to the last compute state, and so when you power back up, it goes back up. They don't need this two N. They need it on the storage side, but they don't need it on the compute side. So do you see people using it more for incubator lab testing versus production? No, I think it's. I think you're seeing both of it now. I think you're seeing, you know, universities that want it for the lab state. I think you're seeing actual application at stadiums and in studios that need that HPC or automotive or manufacturing. That need but I'm HPC. talking like from a disaster recovery perspective. No, I think I think from a disaster recovery, that's interesting. We haven't, you know, I think disaster recovery is always one of the interesting things to me because you know I think a lot of clouds really don't. It's 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 onto the customer to figure it out, and so I think. Are enterprises thinking about that right now? I don't know, but I think we can provide that kind of capability for those enterprises to do that. And I, to be honest, that's just not a use case. We've we've pressure tested a lot yet, but I do think it could be a simple use case for them. Well, if you think about where we started, right, we were talking about one of the greatest advantages is being acclimation, yeah. right? Think about it like this. Um, like the paradigm shift for you 
uh, was, you know, technology drove the business, now business drives technology. And, and maybe that evolved as you went from enterprise to operator. And um, if you think about it, there is a, uh, we could kind of get lost in our own thinking based on where we're at. Yep. Do you agree? Yep. If you were Tony at Facebook still, what would that product have to have been able to provide you for you to have made a purchasing decision for it when you were at Facebook or Oracle or AWS? The way that you viewed it there from the outside looking in versus now on the inside looking out, where you're trying to place this somewhere to where it's easier for the next Tony to 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 want to bring yeah. it on and go champion that to the the people upstream of him to say, hey, look, this is what we need to have if we want to evolve to next. What what did the product have to look like for you at Facebook, Amazon, or Oracle to want to buy it? I mean, I think it's solving a, a solution that I was having problems with in a cost-effective way that wouldn't affect the reliability. So AWS, old pops, old telcos, quickly deploy it for local zones. Uh, you know, GCP, the ability to deploy HPC, that doesn't take up standard rack, you know, basically. So eight, the problem with HPC right now in a typical cloud is they have a different network, they have a different power density. So if I dedicate 64 racks to that, I can't fill them up with standard compute and standard compute makes all the money. So what happens when you run out of standard compute, but you have all these HPC rack positions that are not being utilized, you can't do anything about it. So how do we get, you know, HPC, how do we get these modules to solve for these HPC? So Standard compute, which is much more predictable, can take all those rack positions. That's the same thing that could happen with you know AWS and Azure too. Um, you know, at Oracle, it's the ability to you know reclaim stranded capacity and and also fill the need for dedicated regions, which are you know basically bring the cloud to a customer on prem. And so now they don't have to rely on the on prem data center. You can rely on the modules that can come with it. I think it transcends beyond that, though. I think you could. You could, uh, it's not on premise. I think, <clears throat> I think that there's a carrier hotel play where, I mean, let's say oh. you anchored yourself right outside the, I mean, why do we go to carrier hotels? No, no, 100% you know? agree with that. And, and you know, it's, we've actually had a customer that comes to us in Chicago. It's, hey, guess what? I'm sick of being here. I'm sick of paying these retail rates. I'm, you know, the customer service, can you find something within a half mile of that carrier hotel for 12 racks? You can. You can find and, a parking garage and put them on the roof. Exactly. We found, you know, we found some parking spots because it's not that tough to find real estate yeah. right now with all these kind of parking garages or, or parking spaces. Or it's, or I'm a enterprise hotel and I want to expand my network in. But I, you I, could, you could put your own there and tether everyone in through. Fact, exactly. With your yeah. own. Hundred percent agree. And now you just aggregated all of these people that are needing less than 100 kW to yep. click that are paying a massive premium to be in a carrier hotel. And now only one person pays that premium in a carrier hotel, and you still have access to all those crosses. Yep, and when it's back, all everything. Hell yeah. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So I, I, I guess, I guess um, there's a lot of things that I could see this product still rolling out and, and doing. I'm just, I'm wondering where we, when we think that the tipping point will hit. Um, I think, well, at least for the carrier hotel, what you're just talking about right now will happen in the next two years because the U.S. government's spending seventy-seven point three billion on it, so that'll happen. Whether you know whether we want it or not, that's going to happen. Um, the U.S. government spending seventy three billion on seventy seven point three billion on last mile, middle mile. Interesting. This is all pushing broadband out to rural areas and um, reservations. But the federal government's like, yep, the seventy seven point three billion. Hmm. In fact, the first billion is going to be 
going up the due dates, I think, into September for the, all the states. So it's it's government money that goes to the states. The states award the money. And this is all – It's I mean, it, it, so it's their infrastructure. And that's what we were talking about it's at the beginning. Exactly, like, it's, it seems like it's a government play. No, it, it's a government play. So it's they're basically trying to get rural areas to have low-priced broadband around the, the U.S. So it's a great – Great use case of it. Great, you know, ability to do that kind of stuff, and I think that's going to happen su- super quick. Let's shift gears out of all the nerdy shit for yep. a second. Tell me your craziest sea story. Man, I don't know if I, I don't know if that's legal. Are you have how about this? Like, are you blue nose, order the rock? No, the I've ditch, done I, shell back. I've done the blue knocks. I've done the blue nose. You I've did blue nose. Shell, I've done shell back. I've done. Like I've done old school shell back. Not not. So the, what's old not, school? Not, shell not the newest shell back stuff. Stuff that would. Back in 97, Shellback. Where you got away with a lot of hazing. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> well, the, my blue nose ceremony was not necessarily politically correct. I could promise you that. This was on Memphis? Yeah. And I had to shave my head because I had too much turbulent in my hair. I couldn't get anything out. Yes. <laughs> Which uh, I would imagine that I didn't do my – my mouth doesn't do myself any favor I mean, sometimes. I think, you know, the, the coolest sea stories would be like you go on mission – and you're watching a world event that's being broadcasted by a world leader that they're saying, look how awesome we are. Look at the might of our nation. But it was a total failure. And you have the videotape to prove it. And you go back out and you transport that out. And the president knows that it's all marketing. I mean, that's or, you know, you're you're following another submarine. They think they're being all stealthy and stuff. You know, they could be close to the U.S. or they could be close to following a carrier group and you're just right behind them and they have no clue you're there. I mean, it's all that kind of stuff or even stuff with the SEALs. It's just like, man, you know, and to be honest, I miss those days because it's just there's one thing you can never find that I have yet to find in our sector, which is the it's the team first mentality. I think, you know, people try to replicate that in the private sector. You just can't do it. And I think. You know, that kind of team first mentality and that kind of all mission where everyone's on the same boat and everyone's paddling hard and everyone has your back. Um, I just think, think you can find it out here. So uh, I could understand why you'd say that. I'm, I would like to tell you that I think you can. I think that, um, you know, what we tolerate really defines the standard, not what we, nope. what we, what we espouse nope. to try to reach. And I think... Um, it's interesting. One of my first conversations with Chris, right when we I just started this business uh, when we started Overwatch, and Chris was probably one of the first guys that we talked to. And I said, "Hey, uh, tell me what someone needs to do to be successful for you." And I remember, I think the first thing he said was, uh, "We don't need no heroes. We, you know, we we kill heroes." Nope. And no, I will say, and you know, the next part of that, I think Chris is probably the first business I've worked for that where the you know. I really understood that culture eats strategy for breakfast because if you have the culture, 100%. you don't need strategy because everyone follows the strategy of what the company's doing because it follows the culture. Um, and that is the, like the first one where it's like, you know, humility and pride and incrementals, uh, you know, the power of wine, all this kind of stuff that he has had for the culture. I mean, it's like I, I can't imagine how many times I've wasted on presentations. And this is both in the military, outside the military, to try to find that rock when you when you come and you're like, we don't want this. Imagine if you could just sit there and say, hey, I have a couple of slides. This is what you're looking for, like this incremental, like this. And it's totally counterintuitive. You're actually going slow to go fast. Which is better. It's, which is 100 times better. It's like, and so, you know, Chris is a great example of, I think that's the first time I've kind of realized, well, you know, I've been doing this wrong 
probably my entire phys, you know my entire career, but you, where you kind of had that that team mentality. I'll tell you um, that I have combat infantry people on our team, and and they use that term a lot. It must be prevalent in their space, right? It's slow, smooth, smooth, fast, yeah. and and it didn't it didn't make sense to me at first. I just thought it was a really cool you know uh, tricky phrase, I guess. But I understand that now. Um, I have learned that there's, you know, we paint with broad strokes when we talk about veterans, but really there's different branches. And I, I say this as the youngest of a, a guy in every branch of service, um, you know, the army, they, they, they are exceptional at doing certain things in terms of what they're training, the, they're cultivating or conditioning, I think is a term that you used earlier. Like, yeah, we're kind of all conditioned to do the same for that unit, but not, not all throughout the military. Right. So each, I think the Navy creates a very specific type of person. I think the Air Force creates a very specific and, and as does, um, you know, the Army, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, et cetera. And for us, you know, there's a lot of Navy nukes in this space. And there was a time where I was like, ah, there's maybe an advantage to being that. And you had said something earlier, too, that caught my attention. But I have learned that um, coming from a submarine background does have some great things that it teaches you, like your attention to detail with, you know, danger tag outs or, yeah. you know, things like that, that we had to do that we were, I mean, I worked on energized gear. I mean, there's, there's dangers. Yeah. We're linear thinking in the way that we go through MOPs and SOPs and we're checking through boxes and making sure that everything is, is being executed in order of the design. Like we are really good at tactical execution. Whereas these combat veterans are better at triage, right? And they're conditioned to like, uh, you know, again, being around these guys, they quote Tyson the most, you know, everyone had a plan to, to box me until I punched him once in the face. Yep. And I love how the combat soldiers are training, you know, all day to do something. But once they go into battle, it's all hell's breaking loose. No, it's, no it, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's just like, I, you've seen that before and at and, and a nuclear plant when a drill does not go the way you think it's going to go. Because they're not checking through the boxes. Because they're not checking through the boxes. Yeah. You were t like you can overnook the crap out of oh, yeah. stuff, and you do not very. You're very good if it if your initial condition is set up right, and your indications come through, and you step through the procedure. Anything outside of that, you suck. Well, it's uh, yes. There, um, there's a construct in how they need to execute. They think, and for these. I have these infantry guys on my team and um, we have a lot of paramilitary mindset to type people on our team. And not everybody's military. Half our staff is military. The other half isn't. And, and those ones that aren't, they, they operate just like those that were. And you would never know if I put them all in a room, you wouldn't know which one was civilian or which yep. one wasn't. And um, it's because they all kind of move alike now. And the combat infantry person I discovered I used to always just like, how many crayons can you eat in one minute? Or, you know, there's always, yep. you know, the bullet sponge jokes, but the reality is they thrive under chaos, right? And that's all these delivery of programs are. If you look at every project, especially right now, somebody's transformer fell off the back of the truck or didn't ship on time or somebody's thing got blown up in the middle of commissioning or this didn't work because the electrician wired it out of phase or there's always something, but the one thing that is a constant is the date in which you have to be live. Yeah. And those people that have endured extreme pressure testing through combat have this unique skill to um, compartmentalize shit as it's unfolding and put it here so they don't lose focus on that, where us and our drills would be like, wait, 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 we're on step 
11 and it didn't go well, 12 through 100 just failed. Yep. You know, a ripple no, no, 100% agree. And I think, you know, if you would have asked me probably six years ago, I would have said, I want a bunch of Navy nukes because I know the way they all think and a certain thing. But I think it, it, you don't want that. I mean, you want that's that's a recipe for groupthink. It's a recipe for messing up. You need all these different personality types all to you come do. together on a certain team because you want, you know, I want someone to sit there and say, Tony, you're, you know, you're full of shit. Like, that's wrong. How about think about this way? Or, like, or see it different. Like, I, I don't get it. And they challenge you. <clears throat> like, I, I've never, you know, once again, until, you know, Chris Crosby and what he's been doing for the culture and, and how he hires people, I you need that diversity of background, diversity of experience, and diversity of opinion because you don't want, like, the, the worst thing you can possibly have is groupthink where you think you're you're awesome until you aren't. Yeah, you want healthy conflict. You yep. want opposing ideas yep. to pressure test your own. It's the only way, I mean, it's to test your own conviction, you know? So you have to be like, mm, do I have a hip, do I have a gut feeling? Or am I just trying to rationalize what my idea is? Or is my bullshit? Or is my team just telling me what I want to hear because they just want to go home? They, they don't want to get yelled at. And then <laughs> or they don't want to get yelled at. They just don't care. Um, and I think you need that kind of stuff. So you know, to me, it's you need that broad team. And I agree with you. I think combat veterans. It's just bringing a very unique yeah. mentality. That's why I loved working. You know, you know, I didn't get that much to work with with Army and and Marine Corps or Coast Guard or Space Force, but I worked with a lot of SEALs and I love the way they approach things. It's just a totally different mindset. I actually found as a nuke, I found it incredibly refreshing that, you know, they are not subject to- They'll wing it. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, eh. They're the tip of the spear on the infantry, right? Yeah, so exactly. That's like we can't rally right here. We're gonna have to go to right here, but- but Good, let's keep that's, moving. That's, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's not bad. They're like, Exa all right, cool. Yeah. Now we know how not exactly, to Exactly, exactly. So it's just a different mindset and I, Absolutely, I love that kind of stuff. And yeah, I do think we do have a lot of nukes, but we have to be smart about who we're hiring and we can't just leverage one community. You have to take from all the communities. Oh, to get, I... get the, the diversity the of diversity. experience. Yeah, exactly. That is, you know, when I talk about diversity, you're exactly right, that we're all taught to think there the same, but, it, but it, there is diversity yeah. in each, 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 branch. each branch in their MOS 100%. On, uh, and how they do it. And that's what you really need. I think I I think that that's what we're striving for. Like our very first Oviedo candidate, um, she was an aviation boatswain's mate, right? And uh, aircraft carrier. I think she said she launched like over one hundred twenty thousand planes in her career. And I remember interviewing her, and she was the first one we hired. And I was like, "This is what I know that you're going to be great, but you're going to outgrow us in less than two years. So my biggest challenge will be trying to keep you challenged." And sure shit, we had her on a Compass program and then um, she's at Rosedon now. She's a PM there. And she, I mean, think about it. She came from an aircraft carrier with 5,000 people, came yeah. to a startup, which is like a submarine. Yep. And she wanted to go back to a big ship, you know, yeah. like a Rosedon that has 5,000 people yep. plus in the field. It made a ton of sense for her to go thrive there in a larger environment where she's immersed with thousands of people, right? And I think that, I mean, I have damage, I have a damage controlman from the Coast Guard. I don't know if I would have ever went out and tried to find that person uh, or looked for that profile. I definitely would not have. However, comma, she's exceptional. And we've put her on multiple programs and every client loves her, right? And we'll find a way to always make maintain, you know, some sort of developmental growth for her yep. because as long as we can continue to, to challenge these people, they're going to stick around, yep. I feel. Oh, I agree. But <clears throat> the way that she approaches things, are not, they could not be more different than how I would approach them yep. because of the way I was conditioned to think like everyone else that was on that boat, right? And that's a good thing, but there's a diminishing return 
right? So me in the business that we're in, I'm constant. I know that you're committed to helping veterans just as much as we are. And I mean, we love helping our massively sophisticated yep. clients create these, these facilities that, um, help unleash all these emerging technologies that improve the lives of all of us, right? From the way that we entertain ourselves to the way that we, you know, have our doctors are practicing healthcare by yep. giving us more, more things or access to data faster to, you know, to, to diagnose people quicker, I guess. But I love that. I love being a part of this. I think this industry is amazing, but the thing we enjoy the most, our purpose is to help create more voids so that we could backfill them with more veterans, diversity-based veterans that are going to be like, okay, so if I, uh, on my, you know, in spite of myself, discover that an infantry person or an MP or a damage controlman or a boatswain's mate can do these things. What about these other rates or MOSs that I've never even seen yep. before? What can they bring? And I've learned to uh, value experience a lot less. And uh, I, I can is more important than IQ to us in some cases. People that are willing to just well, so you can't work. Teach, you can't teach attitude. You. Well, you just can't teach people. Either people are motivated or they're not. Yeah, exactly. You can't you can't teach the attitude. They're gonna come. They're gonna have positive attitude or not, and they're gonna work hard. Or they're not gonna work hard. You can you can teach you can teach skill and that kind of stuff. It's just you hire for attitude. I think this industry is amazing. But um, as we bring this podcast home, um, I always like to ask a few questions. Like, what would be your advice to a transitioning veteran right now? I guess a couple things are reach out, getting some mentors. Um, don't make sure you get a couple of opinions because I feel like there's a couple of groups out there that will give opinions that might be geared towards a sector that may not apply to all the sectors. So make sure you get different opinions. Opinions. Make sure you're talking to everyone. Make sure you're on LinkedIn and figuring out, you know, kind of what groups you like with and you're out there putting yourself out there and publishing on LinkedIn. People get, can find you on LinkedIn. Yep. What, what, how can they find you? Just, it's, it's, just Google Tony Grayson. Tony Grayson. Yep, Tony Grayson. And, and if I'll, someone wanted to reach out to you. Yep. You can easily reach out and DM. Now and, listen, because um, I did that multiple times and you ghosted me or, or ignored me multiple times, more than I could probably count, I think. So well, uh, if they reach out to you, you're going to talk to them? No, Skipper? I'll talk to them. I talked to them. I think I'm just giving you a hard no, time. No, it's fine. And there was a time when I was working 150 hours a week. Oh, um, I'm just fucking and, with and you. <laughs> no, I know, but it's not where I wanted to be, to be perfectly honest. So I'm in a much better place now, where I can focus on what I love, which is doing what I'm doing with my own business and everything, but helping out the veterans, kind of stuff. So yeah, me too. Definitely have the, the bandwidth to do that kind of stuff. So you know, email, text, reach out. I I try to do my own podcast to help people out. Ask me kind of questions. I may not know everything, and I'm definitely geared towards more of the, the tech sector and answering those kinds of questions. But, you know, the biggest thing, questions out there is get advice from numerous people, but please don't sell yourself short. It's like you don't have to go to that defense contractor and earn a certain amount of <laughs> it's money comfortable. it's easy. And I know it's comfortable and it's fine if you want to, but if you want to get out there, man, we can do anything out here. We can, we can build data centers, we can design nuclear power plants, we can design energy grids, we can, you know, fly airplane, commercial airlines, we can do anything we want in the in the commercial sector. Don't sell yourself short. And the last one I have is, it's okay to be an IC, an individual contributor. Like there's some stigma for like, we have to be this manager all the time. Mm -mm. It's, I will tell you, most people with the biggest impact in the business are probably more individual contributors than they are in the management aspect of it. And it is just something that's so different than we're taught in the military that we, we associate success with how many people we have under us. And that's not the same in the private sector. Oof. All right. Well, <clears throat> let me ask you this. When you run into people 
and they have no idea what a data center is and they ask you what you do, what do you tell them? Um, I kind of tell them that, you know, kind of all the AWS and Azure. No, no, like what? Like I'm in data centers and they're like, well, what is that? Uh, I say, oh, you know, where, how do you think all your platforms work? And just start to have a conversation of, you know, how the platform's architected. Like take an example of Facebook. You know, there's a thing called the pop with all your little, your updates. And if you want your, your, your cat video that goes back to the data center and how all that works and how that's integrated is kind of how the data center is built. Um, and then if they really start asking questions, you can go into the network layer and the platform layer and the difference between, you know, substrate and overlay and all that kind of stuff. Most people really don't care. I wish that there was, I ask everybody that question. It's so hard to explain to people that don't know this yep. industry because it's such a new industry still. Like, uh, if you were like, Hey, I'm in the automotive industry or I'm in healthcare or I'm in, I mean, even if you say you're in the data center space, there's a big difference between a carrier hotel, a wholesale no, hotel. No, it's or, or your networking cloud. or software or the facility or, you know, the IT side. There's huge differences. I think this industry has to do a better job. We're working on that, right? I don't think that the, you know, when we started DCAC, we didn't think the industry needed another conference. We just felt like it needed a better one. And, you know, the way that we try to market and brand even Overwatch or this podcast is we try to get a little bit more disruptive so we could draw out input from others so that we could arrive at the best answer or solution to things. And I hope that over the course of time when this podcast get, hits the street and after we keep publishing more, I hope that we get, we continue to refine what that answer looks like because there's a lot of people in this space that do a lot of really amazing things that build these skies, yep. these cathedrals, uh, you know, that serve as the home of the cloud, I guess. And it's awesome. Building these data centers is great. Telling people what you do for a living is challenging. Right. It's it's hard to articulate what it is that we do because the industry is still emerging, but we have to find a way to do it to where people are appealing to it. Right. Where yeah. they're like, that sounds like fun. I want to do that. Well, it's also how you can make a career about it. You know, they, how do you how do you translate to what you're doing to be an exciting, but how you can actually make a career out of it, whether it's a your goals in another 20 years, or your goals five years. And, and, and also, what's that progression look like? Like some people are motivated by, you know, I'm excited. What's the promotion? for the next promotion or how do we get the next thing? And we just have to do a better job of explaining that because I don't think we do that either. We just kind of talk in nebulous terms. Like you're a data center tech, you're gonna go run HVAC. Not that people wanna go run a mechanical system for the next 20, and there's some people who do, which is fine. I'm just saying there's others who do not. Um, and we need to show them what that progression is. Yeah, and we have to help them discover a better way to explain what they do. Yep. I, I make sure that arbitrarily here, uh, Airline X's website never goes down, so you could always check in for your boarding pass. I don't know. I'm just making shit up. But there has to be a way to, to tie it back to the way that people don't realize how many data centers they touch a day just by using their cell phone. Yep. No, I agree. You know, so we have to find a way to make it more. Um, I know that like infrastructure masons and, you know, I was talking to uh, TJ at Stack and he's like a, he teaches at a community college, I think in Virginia principles on data centers and stuff. And we, we have to, we have to create a stronger presence of, of some sort of stepping stones, whether it's from the military or from some sort of college or trade school or something that leads you where you see the light and you're trying to strive towards that. Like when you were a kid, you knew that you wanted to be a captain of a submarine. There's no one right now that wants to be a data center CEO or a. No, a, no, you're right. 
And it's, I think we need to evangelize better instead of, um, you can't just sit there and say, I'm going to make a course or a certification and, and expect them to come. It's the start from somewhere, I guess, it, but yeah. Yeah, no, definitely have to start from somewhere and it kind of gives them the base groundwork, but you got to get them excited about it in the first place. Well, listen, uh, I know that I probably hit you with a lot of questions, but what else do you, I, if people were going to leave this podcast, what's the one thing you want them to remember most? Either, you know, two things. What's the one thing you want them to remember most about you personally? Mm -hmm. What's the one thing you want them to remember most about your product? I guess the first thing about me personally is that please reach out if you have any questions on veterans or transition. I don't care what background you come from or, or what service you've been in. I want to help you out. Or if I can't help you out, get to people who can help you out. And that also is, you know, a lot of the jobs are, you know, they're reference-based. They're not necessarily resume-based. And yeah, so it's will help you get you landed or point you in the right direction for people. Um, and so that, you know, I am dedicated to that and it's something that, you know, I have the time to do it now and I'm super excited about that. And I dedicate a lot of my time to do it. So please reach out. Um, and then the second thing is about the product is, you know, we're still trying to figure out where this fits in the whole scheme and hierarchy thing, which we kind of talked about, but you know, what we're trying to do is make a super fungible solution that can go anywhere that's turnkey that is an OPEX-based and, you know, we want to work to help you help your business. Um, and so, you know, you can label it for whatever you want or, you know, put your put your label on the side. Like I said, we just want to be the BASF, the white label supplier, in the background of everything, but no one knows what the hell we do. That's what we're trying to do. That's what our whole industry is. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, listen, I appreciate you making the time to come sit down and tell your story. Thanks. and. I hope to have you back on one day. I, that should give you enough time to think about some better sea stories. Yeah, I did, I did. Well, it's stuff I can, I can. Stuff you can I, talk about. I can talk about without having to kill trouble. me. Exactly. I got exactly. you. I understand those stories. So, uh, but thanks again. I had a great time. So thanks so much, Tony. Thanks, Kirk.